0: The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the Forgotten TV studio 30 years later. To obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. This is the NBC Television Network.
1: And, NBC, let's all be there. and now, the countdown is over. Last week in The Final Battle, the world rejoiced. Mankind had just claimed victory in its war with the visitors. We've lost. Diana, it's over. Earth had one secret weapon, the red dust. Discovered by Mike Donovan and Juliet Parrish. When not protected by antidote, the toxin proved fatal to aliens, but harmless to other life forms. Once scattered into the atmosphere, it drove the visitors into retreat, but drove the alien leader, Diana, to nuclear revenge. Donovan had no way to stop the countdown to destruction. Price! It was the star child, Elizabeth, half human and half alien, who amazingly saved the world. Tonight, Diana is back. This time, she's mad. Tonight, the visitors return. They're plotting a war of conquest, a war of revenge. Prepare yourself now for the premiere of V, the series.
0: Yes, immediately following the success of V, The Final Battle in early May, NBC decided they wanted a weekly series for the fall of 1984. Normally, TV series were green-lit and well into production before May, when the networks would hold Upfronts, announcing their fall programming lineups. The day after The Final Battle finished airing, it was being reported that NBC would include V in its lineup of 10 new series for that fall. Joining other new one-hour dramas, Highway to Heaven, Hunter, Miami Vice, Partners in Crime, and Hot Pursuit, created by Kenneth Johnson. But to get V ready for a weekly series for fall would require a rush job. Even so, it would not debut until the end of October. Fortunately, executive producers Robert Singer and Daniel Blatt had given thought to the potential that NBC would indeed ask for a weekly V-series. Contradicting what Kenneth Johnson had previously told NBC, Blatt would tell the press that they had figured out a way to bring costs down and produce a weekly show cheaper than Johnson had previously estimated, partly due to pre-existing sets, costumes, and props. And now that all the major sets are in place, those are no longer a series cost factor. To do V as a weekly series, it would come in to excess of $1 million per one-hour show. If it's a hit show, it's not that expensive. The weekly series went into production in July with a reported budget of over $1 million per episode. Making V the series. Say it with me now. one One of the the most expensive expensive TV TV series ever. However, while the original V was thoughtful allegory, NBC planned the series for Friday night competition against ABC sitcoms and the Dukes of Hazzard. With the network wanting something more resembling popcorn entertainment and the early time slot meaning things couldn't get too serious, philosophical storytelling was replaced with sci-fi shootouts and spaceship chases or even car chases, as we'll see. Robert Singer and Daniel Blatt from The Final Battle were still running things, with Singer promising at least one shocker per episode. However, our emphasis will be on the characters' intriguing personal stories, and we'll be introducing several new key cast members. Then let's dig in to V, the series, in the original intended viewing order. The Final Battle was rerun by NBC Sunday, October 14th, Monday, October 15th, and Friday, October 19th, 1984. I recall watching the final installment that Friday night as we had cable TV installed earlier that day and for the first time in better part of a year had a television and reliable TV reception. That Friday night, my mind was blown when NBC announced, V, the series, for the following Friday, October 26th, 1984. The visitors are coming back, and nothing can stop them. Friday, October 26th, V, the series. Liberation Day, Episode 1, air date October 26th, 1984. Picking up immediately where V, the final battle, left off, Donovan takes a fighter in pursuit of the fleeing Diana. After a crash landing, Donovan evidently captures her. One year later, on Liberation Day, former Resistance members are being interviewed on TV. Elias is owner of the new club Creole and budding movie producer, and Donovan and Julie on the mothership. Julie is working on the mothership project, which studies the technology left behind by the visitors. The mothership project is run by Nathan Bates and his Science Frontiers Corporation that now manufactures red dust, as well as the antidote for visitors left behind on Earth who must take a pill every 12 hours, indefinitely, to be protected against its effects. A highly publicized trial is being held for Diana, However, Ham Tyler, under the direction of Nathan Bates, stages a fake Jack Ruby-style assassination attempt and kidnaps her. He intends to hold her comfortably while she provides science frontiers with medical and scientific breakthroughs. When she outlives her usefulness, Ham intends to do away with her. Donovan and Martin track down Diana, and Martin tries to kill her, but she escapes with Martin's last antidote pill leaving him to die. Donovan and Ham track her to a satellite antenna facility where she intends to recall the fleet. She is rescued by visitors who arrive in a sky fighter who take her to the dark side of the moon where several motherships are hiding. Meanwhile, young Elizabeth the Star Child, pursued by the media and manifesting new powers, hides in a cave and forms a cocoon to mutate. But... Into what? V returned to NBC October 26, 1984, with a new theme by Dennis McCarthy and a few new cast members in the credits, including Jennifer Cook as a young adult Elizabeth, June Chadwick as Lydia, Lane Smith as Nathan Bates, Jeff Yeager as Kyle Bates. This inaugural episode was written by Paul Monash, who had worked since the early days of television and is credited as creator of the series Kane's Hundred, Peyton Place, and Judd for the Defense. While EPs Robert Singer and Daniel Blatt from the final battle were still around, supervising producer Stephen E. D'Souza is brought on board. Even though it was emphasized by executive producers Singer and Blatt how expensive the series would be, Following the first two, episodes started to come across as cheaply produced and rushed, with story inconsistencies. For example, nearly all footage involving Skyfighter craft and motherships appear reused from the first two miniseries, now recomposited with new backgrounds. The exception is that closing shot showing motherships hiding on the other side of the moon, as the production now had models of the motherships. One thirty inch model is seen in the foreground, with smaller, perhaps 6-inch mothership models behind it, all in front of a 36-inch model of the moon. However, the distinct vocal reverberation of the visitors is also done away with, another cost-cutting measure. Also, when Diana crash-lands and is pursued by Donovan, she should have died from the just-released red dust, but does not. This is never explained. However, we're left with several lingering questions that are never answered. What happened to the presumably hundreds of thousands of humans that were stored for food on the 50 motherships? How did the existence and identity of Elizabeth become common knowledge? Why would the visitors allow the humans to possess the L.A. mothership when they presumably could destroy it from orbit? The real answers are that the series was intended for a Friday night viewing audience at 8 7 central hence more simplistic storytelling suited to younger viewers was implemented dreadnought episode 2 air date november 2nd 1984 donovan and ham tyler contemplate why diana survived even after martin's antidote pill wore off while ham conceals the fact that he had staged her assassination Meanwhile, Diana takes command of the mothership fleet behind Earth's moon while dealing with Lydia, newly arrived fleet security officer from the homeworld. Elizabeth emerges from her cocoon as a young woman, as Diana sends shock troopers to capture her. When they are killed by red dust, albeit delayed, both Julie and Diana realize, in warmer climates, the effectiveness of the original dispersal is beginning to decline. While Diana has multiple cities attacked, Nathan Bates threatens to detonate Science Frontier's headquarters, which would release a new supply of red dust, unless she agrees to leave Los Angeles untouched. Under Bates, a provisional government is set up, and L.A. becomes a neutral city, where neither side can bear arms. In addition, Diana's mothership is to be returned to her. Of course, Diana intends to double-cross humanity and deploy the Triax superweapon to wipe LA off the map with one laser blast. The Resistance storms the grounded mothership. Elizabeth uses her powers to jump-start it, and a mortally wounded Robert Maxwell chooses to pilot it into the Triax, saving Los Angeles. Neither Diana nor Lydia report their failure back to the leader. However, Nathan Bates reveals further research indicates the red dust is not harmless to humans after all. If more were to be released, it would begin to kill humans. Also, Willie reveals Elizabeth bears the physical mark of Zahn, an outlawed visitor religion that opposes the leader, meaning she has special mystical significance not fully understood. Episode written by supervising producer Steven D'Souza. Footage is again recycled from the original miniseries, and a visitor's Skyfighter craft and new laser effects are composited into scenes from 1953's War of the Worlds. Appropriately, Donovan and Ham listen to the attack on L.A. over the radio and encounter visitor troops on a stretch of studio backlot which we will see several times over the course of the series. But no reason is given for the police to be chasing Donovan and Ham early in the episode. It is possible the explanation was left on the editing room floor or was lost in the nine script revisions of the prior episode. Ham also never reveals his part in the conspiracy to stage Diana's assassination and it's never mentioned again. The episode ends with Diana on a new mothership as the original one that hovered over L.A was destroyed. And I'll note the serialized nature of the storytelling here, which was unusual for a primetime adventure series of this era. Yes, there were the nighttime dramas that were little more than primetime soap operas, but virtually all American primetime adventure series up to this point were steady-state shows. While there may have been an overarching goal of a series, most often presented as characters in search of something, see... Kung Fu, Battlestar Galactica, Logan's Run, The Fantastic Journey, The Incredible Hulk, Voyagers, Otherworld, Starman, and Quantum Leap. Typically, if the goal was reached, the series would be over. Or at least, the format of the series would morph into something new. Episodes were thus interchangeable, and at the story conclusion, there was a return to the status quo. After all, one episode of The Six Million Dollar Man or Star Trek is largely like any other, and can be rerun in any order, two-part episodes notwithstanding. Diana had two costume changes this episode. First, she was sporting a tight red bodysuit with black sequined V-shaped tunic over it that emulates snakeskin. Later, a white bodysuit underneath the same tunic. And some shock troopers begin wearing similar outfits from here on. The Triax Superweapon was designed and built by Dale Fay of David Stipe's Productions, who were regularly used throughout the series. When Warner asked the effects company if they could find stock footage of a ship that could be passed off as an enormous visitor superweapon, Fay did them one better and dug up a model he had built for a student film while attending the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. The model was modified and rented to the V production, who mounted it on their motion-control stage and did several different shots that exceeded original expectations. Fay went on to be the visual effects supervisor on Season 2 of the 2009 NBC reboot of V. Breakout, Episode 3, air date May 25th, 1985. Good evening,
2: I'm Howard K. Smith and this is the State of the War tonight. In the Middle East, a dramatic breakthrough as the occupied city of Jerusalem saw a combined force of Arab and Israeli commandos briefly liberate the Wailing Wall before being driven back by counter-attacking visitor troops. Closer to home, the news comes from Los Angeles, California, that Nathan Bates, the strong man, has solidified his position in creating what is being called an open city. Similar to Lisbon, during World War II, Los Angeles has apparently agreed to what amounts to a separate peace a piece the resistance has denounced as a sham. From this vantage point, it must be said that Los Angeles' future remains in doubt. And this week, the Freedom Network awards the Medal of Valor to 18-year-old Kipper Cardesco of Cleveland, Ohio. He organized members of his senior class into the George Washington Brigade and led them into action at Bears Point, Kentucky, where they routed an alien patrol as heavy fighting continued in the Appalachian Mountains. And that's where we stand tonight. From the Freedom Network in New York, our hopes are with you. Good night.
0: Donovan and Ham Tyler leave the city in search of Donovan's son, Sean, but are captured defending a young boy from the visitors. They are put in a work camp where they find Robin Maxwell, as well as Nathan Bates' son, Kyle. Escape is made difficult, but not impossible, by the Crivets, alien sand sharks that guard the perimeter. Meanwhile, both Diana and Nathan Bates are in search of Elizabeth, the Star Child, but unaware that in her mutated state, she appears ten years older. Elizabeth now has command of English and can play the piano, abilities that come easy to her due to her powers. Kyle Bates is reunited with his father, but wants little to do with him since he's in bed with the visitors episode written by David Braff, who served as executive story editor and would pin five episodes of the series, also credited for multiple episodes of Eight is Enough, Freddy's Nightmares, and Baywatch. As of this episode, Steven D'Souza is no longer credited as supervising producer, and Garner Simmons takes over this position. As we'll see, Steven D'Souza left the show over creative differences, or was let go, depending on whose version of events you go by. Twelve-year-old Christian Jacobs appeared as young Billy, who had recently come off a stint on the series Gloria as Joey Stivick. Jeff Yeager is also introduced as Kyle Bates. Yeager had plenty of shirtless scenes, giving Mark Singer a run for his money in terms of series sex appeal. Starting with this one, newsman Howard K. Smith opens episodes with updates on worldwide resistance against the visitor occupation. This simple and inexpensive storytelling device reminded the viewer of the larger picture of events still taking place while series plots focused on the LA area. This episode was not aired by NBC during the initial series run, which skipped right to the following episode, The Deception. The 1980s V-Files books by James Van Heiss gave the explanation that NBC had rejected this episode due to concerns over violence given V's early evening time slot. This narrative has been endlessly repeated online since. However, NBC later did air it as the third episode when V started reruns in May 1985, and the episode aired at 8, 7 central. What Gives? Consulting writer David Braff reveals some interesting information. According to Braff, the script for Breakout was enthusiastically received by Warner Brothers and NBC. Brandon Tartikoff even told him how much he liked his script. In fact, this episode was first in line for filming. So, what happened? As Braff told Forgotten TV, There were significant production problems. The director was unprepared, alienated the crew, couldn't keep up with the shooting schedule, and came in with a cut that was disappointing, to say the least. It was so bad, in their view, that NBC decided to hold it for later in the season. That decision set the tone for the rest of the season. Breakout was included as Episode 3 in reruns and on home video releases. But when viewed it presents continuity errors that are inconsistent with the following episodes. Two highly noticeable inconsistencies are Ham and Kyle meeting twice and Robin rejoining the resistance group twice. Also, Elizabeth's mark of Zahn is now shown as an infinity tattoo on her hand and not raised nodules of skin as seen in the prior episode. The Deception, Episode 4, air date November 9, 1984. Robin, having fled a visitor security highway checkpoint at the end of Episode 2, is picked up by Kyle, who happens by on a motorbike. Giving Robin a lift through the desert, a dying jet pilot who had ejected his aircraft gives him a pouch to deliver to Club Creole, introducing him to the Resistance and Elizabeth, now a beautiful young woman with an apparent age of 18 that is clearly attracted to him. Diana captures Donovan and uses a converted and drugged Sean, along with her holographic chamber, to pump him for intelligence on Elizabeth. However, the flaw in her plan is she is unaware of Elizabeth's mutated, more powerful adult form. Episode written by Garner Simmons, now the supervising producer. Sean is now played by 14-year-old Nicky Catt, replacing Eric Johnston. Cat had acted since age seven and continued to work as an actor into adulthood, perhaps best remembered as teacher Harry Sennett on Boston Public. No Freedom Network update this week, at least on the home video versions. There apparently is a question as to whether the Freedom Network segment that currently appears in front of Breakout actually appeared in front of this episode when it originally aired, as Howard K. Smith shows up in the end credits. The script for this one had to be rewritten when NBC pulled Episode 3. In fact, three days of pickups had to be filmed, where scenes have to be reshot for various reasons, such as bad takes and sometimes to bridge cuts, or, in this case, to fix plot and continuity errors introduced by things like pulling entire episodes from a serialized storyline. The plot here is taken from the 1965 film 36 Hours, with James Garner and Eva Marie Saint.
1: Give me any American, and in 36 hours, I will give you back a traitor. The time, six days before D-Day. Major Jefferson Pike, US intelligence, is briefed on the invasion. Two hours later, Major Pike embarks on a crucial secret mission to Lisbon. In less than 24 hours, Major Pike will awaken here, in what he thinks is a US Army hospital. In 12 hours, he will age six years. In 36 hours, he will live the most bizarre spy adventure plot ever conceived. How the hell did I get here? Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents 36 Hours.
0: In the film, Germans convince a captured American major into thinking years have passed and World War II is over. So he'll give up details about the Allied invasion of Europe. Here, Donovan was tricked into thinking a year had passed with humans victorious in their struggle. The plot also showed up at least seven times on Mission Impossible, as well as The Six Million Dollar Man, The Hardy Boys, Star Trek The Next Generation, and many other TV shows since. Various other tidbits include Willie revealing he's a vegetarian, Diana eating a mouse in front of Donovan, but he is convinced it's a pastry, And Kyle yells, Get to the Chopper, a line made popular by Arnold Schwarzenegger in 1987's Predator. The cover name Elizabeth was given to use in the episode was Elizabeth Dunn, a reference to slain actress Dominique Dunn, who would have played Elizabeth's mother, Robin. The Sanction, Episode 5, airdate November 16th, 1984. Klaus, an alien military trainer, sets up his own Visitor Youth Corps Cobra Kai-type dojo at the legation to teach Ravak, a visitor martial art, with Sean as his pupil. But a rescue attempt by Donovan results in Sean choosing Diana over his own father. Meanwhile, against Julie's advice, Elizabeth takes a motorbike tour of L.A. with Kyle and spots her mother, triggering an incident where she has a telekinetic outburst, putting the pair on the run for a while. Robin finally reunites with the entire resistance group, reuniting mother and daughter, while Kyle deduces Elizabeth is the star child, and Nathan Bates begins to suspect the same. Episode written by Brian Taggart, who penned four episodes of the series. Aki Aliong begins his nine-episode stint as Mr. Chang, Nathan Bates' enforcer. The Trinbegonian-American actor has enjoyed nearly a 70-year career in TV and film and is a familiar face in numerous martial arts films over the decades. Thomas Calloway appeared as Klaus, a frequent guest actor from TV of this era. Previously referred to as the Visitor Friends, or Friends of the Visitors, the Visitor Youth Organization is now simply called the Visitor's Youth Corps. Klaus's Ravak Dojo had several well-done, previously unseen Visitor Youth Corps propaganda posters, which emphasized the similarities to the Jugend. It would have been interesting to see this story element continue to develop, but unfortunately, This, as well as the Sean Donovan storyline, was completely dropped going forward. Sean barely gets a passing mention in a couple of future episodes, while previously Donovan being driven to find Sean was a motivating factor of his character. This begins to highlight story arc and tonal inconsistencies in this series, as the direction of the show increasingly turns from serious into sci-fi camp. As Daniel Blatt promised in the press, we do have more mouse eating, and the opening scene of this episode seems to evoke From Russia With Love, where an assassin garrots an agent with a James Bond mask. In the opening scene here, Monica Maynor, Jane Battler's stand-in, had to wear two masks, a full lizard head mask over which a Diana face mask and wig was fitted and touched up. This combination made it very difficult to see, hear, or even breathe properly. Most actors could only tolerate this particular mask arrangement for about 20 minutes before it had to be removed. Visitor's Choice, Episode 6, Date November 23, 1984 Resistance Intel speaks of an encapsulator that the visitors are about to roll out promising to triple the speed of packaging humans for food. Resistance activities irritate Diana, who has Nathan Bates implement a 9 p.m. curfew and a death penalty for possessing weapons in the city. Donovan and Julie travel outside the city to Playa del Mar, where a visitor retreat of war criminals is held to debut the Encapsulator. Crashing the party, they free the captured humans, including a young woman who is reunited with her brothers. And Kyle's activities with the Resistance continues to be a thorn in his father's side. Episode written by David Braff. Robert Ellenstein appears as Visitor General Maxwell Larson. He notably played the Federation president in Star Trek IV. And in a bit of stunt casting... B-movie queen Sybil Danning guest starred as Mary Kruger, the dark angel of Dallas. When Danning first appears on screen, she is in a swimsuit-like tiger-striped one-piece with belt, knee-high black stiletto boots, black leather bracelets, and neck choker. I get the feeling Danning may have provided her own wardrobe here. She held onto it for decades until it was finally auctioned to UK fan Andy Daimlow in 2014. Sharp-eyed viewers will note the muscle man Kruger uses to demonstrate the encapsulator steps out of it before the camera fully pans away from him. Just what the encapsulator actually does is not detailed, but it is apparently painful and likely irreversible, and would replace the previous process of storing humans in the suspended form we previously saw. Behind-the-scenes images posted on Sybil Danning's website shows an apparently encapsulated human where a partially transparent membrane is tightly wrapped around an unfortunate victim. This was not shown in the final edit of the episode, possibly due to the unsatisfactory nature of the effect. I could also see the NBC BS department nixing it as simply too much for an 8, 7 Central Friday night show. Fortunately, the prototype was destroyed along with its creator. But here, we begin to see the decline into sci-fi camp I just mentioned. One running gag from here on out is, what will the visitors eat this week? Here, it's ants as sweet and sour snacks. After all, we know we're not going to see them eat a person on network television, even as the visitor dignitaries sat down to an actual dinner table with China Settings to do so. Various tidbits, the episode provides the only instances of visitors given first and last names, Mary Kruger and Maxwell Larson. Forgotten TV fan Jerry Seward wonders if these characters had last names due to being on Earth undercover prior to the first public appearance of the motherships. We learn that there is a Radio Free America that broadcasts pro-resistance messaging and entertainment and that Donovan and Julie's code names are Romeo and Juliet. Nathan Bates has become a de facto dictator, able to unilaterally enact laws and have people tortured and killed. We see the first use of the visitor's laser jeep, a white utility jeep with mounted laser cannon behind the roll bar. This was one of the proposed toys from LJN that was never produced. Diana again appears in the tight white pantsuit and has the largest glittery hairdo yet seen. The Overlord, Episode 7, air date November 30th, 1984. Above the frost line where the red dust is active, a biker gang holds a town hostage, providing slave labor, mining cobalt for the visitor's laser weapons. When one woman escapes, she asks for help from Elias and the Resistance, but is it a setup? Meanwhile, Nathan Bates is becoming suspicious that Julie is still helping the resistance, but is so far unable to prove it. Elizabeth finally confesses her love for Kyle, and Julie has had it with a whiny robin. On the mothership, Diana continues to deal with the devotees of the Zahn religion, who operate in secret. Diana also takes... Special interest in young Ensign Daniel, tasked with investigating the Zan worshippers. Episode written by David Abramowitz, who penned four episodes and served as a story editor on the series. There's more mouse and tarantula eating, and we learn more about the Zan religion. They have a Bible called the Book of Zan and Amon. High Priest of Zan appears as a hologram to adherents via a communication device. Diana feeds a Zan worshiper to a crivet, the appearance of which is different to the one that appeared in Breakout, and what was previously logically assumed is now confirmed via dialogue that the visitors have a faster than light communication method called Hyperlight. In this episode, when face masks are ripped, the lizard makeup stands out as exceptional and as good as anything seen in either mini-series, the work of Alan Fama and Marvin Westmore, who worked under Werner Kepler and Leo Lotito Jr. on The Final Battle. We also begin to see the by now noticeable repeated use of the same Warner backlot areas, especially the Midwest Street and Town Square, this time used as a stand-in for the town of Rollinsville. This section was heavily used for numerous productions, including The Dukes of Hazzard, V's competition over on CBS. Following this episode, as the production was filming episode 12, NBC renewed the series for the back end of the season, ordering an additional six episodes. The Dissident, episode 8, air date December 14th, 1984. Diana tests a force field at a key LA entry point, which vaporizes a resistance supply truck. To fully deploy it around the city, she needs to install a power relay on the surface. Nathan Bates lets her install it at Science Frontiers in exchange for control over who goes in and out of the city. Donovan and Ham sneak on board the mothership to kidnap elderly visitor Jacob, blind pacifist, follower of Zion, and architect of the force field because Diana needs him to keep the force field working. Predictably, he sacrifices himself to destroy the force field, while Diana, tired of the tattling Lydia, has her shuttle destroyed, presumably with her aboard. Meanwhile, the Kyle-Elizabeth romance becomes a weird love triangle, when Robin makes known her feelings for Kyle to her daughter, who runs and tells him, Awkward, Episode written by Paul F. Edwards, credited with two episodes as well as executive story consultant. Edwards is also known for his work on Gunsmoke and Wizards and Warriors. John McLeam appeared as Jacob. McLeam was a working actor with over 200 appearances on TV over his 40-year career until his death in 1994 at age 76. The production evidently no longer had the conversion chamber set from the final battle, so we get a cheap version in a chair here. We got more recycled fighter craft footage. Elizabeth's mark of Zahn on her hand is now back to being a raised patch of skin, albeit slightly different than what was previously shown, and although blind, Jacob can somehow sense its presence. However, we don't have to worry about any more inconsistencies with this because in yet another instance of a storyline being completely dropped, this is the last mention of Elizabeth's Mark of Zahn, or the Zahn religion. Diana's claim of half a million possible combinations for a four-character alphabetical code is correct. 456,976 combinations, to be exact. Providing we don't factor in upper and lower case characters. However, Nathan Bates' poor and obvious choice of his son's name, Kyle, meant Julie didn't have to make half a million guesses. According to How Secure Is My Password, it would take a modern PC running password-cracking software 11 microseconds to crack this code. Ensign Daniels, offed at the end of the last episode by Diana, appears on the bridge and makes a report to her. Oops! While it would be easy just to say NBC flipped the episodes, seeing as how The Dissident script was turned in a month prior to The Overlord, note that Lydia is apparently killed at the conclusion of The Dissident, but appeared, as normal, in The Overlord. No, instead of blaming it on NBC air dates, this discrepancy can likely be chalked up to the difficulties of keeping story continuity straight in a weekly series where episodes are sometimes shot out of order. This likely led to what began appearing on script cover pages as of the next episode. Reflections in Terror, Episode 9, date December 21st, 1984 A visitor spy sneaks a blood sample of Elizabeth to Diana, who uses it to clone her as part of a scheme to develop a red dust antitoxin. As often happens with clones, this one is unstable and escapes, and Diana sends a tracker after her. With the help of a priest, Donovan and Ham are smuggling orphans from the occupied areas into the city where they'll be safe. This draws attention from Nathan Bates, who sets his sight on Club Creole, and Julie's cover is finally blown, along with Club Creole, literally, as Donovan destroys the club with Bates's men inside. The Robin-Kyle-Elizabeth love triangle comes to a head, and a little orphan girl rekindles the Christmas spirit in Ham Tyler, as all celebrate in the secret underground level underneath the blown-up club. Episode written by Chris Mannheim, known for Eight is Enough, Murder, She Wrote, and Xena, Warrior Princess. This is Mannheim's only credited episode of V. The creepy Anthony James guests as visitor tracker Baird. William Wellman Jr. as Father Turney. And Jenny Beck returns as the young Elizabeth clone. And we are treated to more recycled footage. This time of The Cocoon from Episode 2. Yes, it is the Christmas episode, and Mannheim sneaks a real Casablanca moment into the episode when a visitor soldier playing their national anthem is drowned out by Julie and the others singing America the Beautiful. This is reminiscent of the Nazis at Rick's Café singing the German patriotic anthem Die Wacht am Rhein, are drowned out by the exiled French passionately singing La Marseillaise the French national anthem in one of the most memorable scenes of that classic 1942 film. This is especially apropos, considering Steven D'Souza's original concept for the series, which we'll discuss later. We learn that Ham Tyler once had a wife and child in Vietnam, which ended in tragedy. This backstory will be continued in the next episode. A line was changed in post-production to something less sexually suggestive. When Kyle is showering, the Elizabeth clone walks in the bathroom. The script has him say, Come on in, the water's fine, which matches his lip movements in the scene. Said with a big smile on his face, I might add. Yes, even though people can be machine-gunned and necks can be snapped, NBC's Standards and Practices must have thought this comment too risque for 8-7 Central, and the line was changed to Hold on, I'll be out in a minute. Also, the original title of the episode was A Reflection in Terror. With this episode, a new directive started appearing on script cover pages, which stated, Due to the serialized elements of V, it is imperative that dialogue not be changed without consulting the supervising or executive producers. The Conversion, Episode 10, air date January 4, 1985. Ham and Kyle go on an unauthorized mission and are captured. Charles, charismatic special envoy of the leader, arrives, bringing with him Lydia, thought to have been killed in Episode 8. Diana leaks information, allowing Lydia to be captured by the Resistance, while Charles uses a new conversion process on Ham. Staging a prisoner exchange through Nathan Bates, Charles intends to have the converted Ham kill Donovan. This is sensed by Elizabeth, who uses her powers to derail the plan, resulting in Nathan being shot instead. Episode written by Brian Taggart, Duncan Regeer begins his recurring role as Charles. The Canadian actor was not well known to viewers at the time, but had roles on Wizards and Warriors and The Last Days of Pompeii prior to V. He might be best known to this audience for his portrayal of Count Dracula in 1987's The Monster Squad. In this first episode of 1985, during Ham's conversion, Charles uses knowledge of Ham's missing Vietnamese wife and daughter as part of the conversion process. In a scene that's about as serious as it gets, the conversion fantasy depicts Donovan running the conveyor belt, with his wife and daughter in pods to be stored away as food. However, jokey elements begin to creep in with this one as well, such as Willie in a mouse costume, giving away free live rodents as part of a diversion, and visitors without human masks sunning themselves under heat lamps in the mothership gym. The full head lizard masks are also starting to be less than convincing at this halfway point of the season and the arrival of Charles will progress the series into full dynasty mode with the goings-on aboard the mothership.
1: Thinking about a new car? And check out 1985's Car of the Year. This year, Kit has more amazing features and more incredible powers than ever. And September 30th, you can see them all. I can't wait. If you can't wait, call 1-900-210-KITT and find out more. Michael? Easy, buddy.
0: The Hero, Episode 11, air date January 11, 1985. While Nathan Bates is in a coma, visitor covert operative Lieutenant James stages a false flag attack against science frontiers, blaming the resistance. This is used as a pretext to declare martial law in L.A. as Diana and Charles puts Bates' assistant, Mr. Chang, in charge. At a print shop friendly to the resistance, Robin and others are taken prisoner, and Mr. Chang threatens to begin executing them on television until Donovan, Ham, and Julie surrender themselves. But while reconning the situation with Willie, Elias Taylor is vaporized by a visitor disintegrator, which is witnessed by both Willie and Robin. When the resistance shows up to even the score, it's Donovan versus Charles in a knockdown dragout fight, but Robin's new friend John is hiding a secret. Episode written by Carlton Eastlake. This is his first writing credit. Later working on The Equalizer, Booker, and Sequest D.S.V. Judson Scott joins the cast as new player Lieutenant James. Scott had played Benu on The Phoenix and was Khan's right-hand man Joaime. On Star Trek II, Bruce Davison begins a stint on the show as John Langley, love interest for Robin. A relatively little-known character actor at the time, Davison did come to the attention of moviegoers as social misfit Willard, friend only to a colony of rats in that 1971 film. He later became known for his roles on Hunter, Harry and the Hendersons, The Practice, Kingdom Hospital and several feature films. Robert Hooks guest stars, known for his roles on the 60s series NYPD and on Star Trek III the prior year. Here, he is directed by his son, Kevin Hooks, who was used to direct three episodes of V. The younger Hooks has regularly directed television since and has helmed some 175 hours of television, in addition to the feature film Passenger, 57. The big event here was the death of Elias, a character that had been around since the beginning of the V saga. As we'll see, this was only the beginning of the mid-season shakeup. An interesting reveal in this episode was that Robin's DNA was particularly susceptible to recombination, a rare trait among humans, which is why Diana was able to crossbreed her with Brian. This indicates natural human and visitor reproduction is not something that just happens, but some type of technological intervention is required. Odd to bring up this revelation this far into the series, but as we'll see next episode, there will be a reason for it. On a lighter note, Lydia eats an obvious gummy worm in this episode. However, it was indeed in a jar full of real worms. June Chadwick had the worm handler wash the worms repeatedly before sticking her hand in it and chowing down on the candy worm that just had the real worms wriggling on it. What a trooper. A personal note, we are firmly now into the second half of the series, and from here on out, into episodes I previously have never seen until now. The morning after this episode aired, a record 13.5 inches of snow fell in the San Antonio area. And in the middle of all that, I was driven across town to apply for a job at the new movie theater in town, meaning I would now be working Friday nights and not home watching V. The Betrayal, episode 12, airdate January 18th, 1985. When Willie is shot meeting a fifth columnist, Julie sends Donovan and Ham to kidnap a visitor doctor to help him. By chance, they happen to grab a fifth columnist doctor named Howie, who does his best. But when Willie dies, Elizabeth miraculously resurrects him. With Nathan Bates still in a coma, Charles continues using his deepfake video generator to secretly run LA and stockpile laser cannons in the open city, while convincing Mr. Chang that Bates needs to be killed. Kyle tries to save his father, who was killed in the process. Kyle and Chang then fight, resulting in Mr. Chang's death. Continuing her genetic experiments to defeat the red dust, Diana is again looking to impregnate Robin Maxwell, this time using John, who is revealed to be an undercover visitor. However, on a mission to blow up the laser cannon depot, John reveals himself and is killed by Howie, who manages to maintain his cover. The incident with John was Robin's last straw and she decides to leave L.A. for a new start in Chicago, escorted there by Ham and Chris. Episode written by Mark Rosner. This is Rosner's only V-episode, and his most well-known credit is 1996's The Rock. Guest-starring Richard Minchenberg as Howie, a character that had the potential of returning but never did. You might remember Minchenberg from his stints on Cagney and Lacey or... E.R. Lots going on in this episode, a turning point in the series, with the loss of Nathan Bates, Mr. Chang, Ham Tyler, Chris Farber, and Robin Maxwell, coming only a week after the loss of Elias Taylor. Nobody can blame Robin for heading north where the red dust is still effective, given that she keeps picking love interests that turn out to be lizards. The episode left it open to interpretation whether or not Robin and John consummated their attraction. But a quick dubbed-in line from Julie at the end, at least you're not pregnant, puts the pin in any possibility of another hybrid offspring either way. However, Ham Tyler's leaving was treated as a goodbye to the character, even though hurried dialogue at the end only mentions he was leaving to take Robin to Chicago. Was something edited out? The red dust failsafe rigged by Nathan Bates in Episode 2, if his heart were to ever stop beating, was referred to, but such an explosion inexplicably never took place when he was killed. According to some fan sites, a scene showing Kyle taking his pulse monitor and putting it on his own arm was deleted from the final edit. Going forward, Science Frontier shows up as a plot point once more, and the visitor doomsday mechanism is never mentioned again. Which brings us to Elizabeth, now given the power of resurrection by the writers. Well, that's a choice. Problem is, where do you go from here? On a weekly series, giving a character that kind of power is problematic. Going forward, any death short of Elias being vaporized might be reversed. We'll have to see how this is dealt with. And what will happen with the open city remains to be seen, with both Nathan Bates and Mr. Chang gone. Charles is now secretly running things with the public unaware a fake, digital Nathan Bates is giving orders on TV. The Rescue, Episode 13, air date February 1, 1985 Good evening, I'm Howard K. Smith, and this is the
2: State of the War tonight. In an unprecedented show of solidarity, an integrated force of black and white South Africans staged a daring hit-and-run attack on the visitor processing plant at Johannesburg. More than 200 people were rescued. Philadelphia resident Stuart Kaminsky was awarded the Freedom Network's Medal of Valor for his courage in operating an underground railroad between Atlanta and the city of brotherly love. To date, he has single-handedly saved more than 300 people from the Georgia work camps. Here at home in the U.S., in Los Angeles, shocking news. As Nathan Bates, the power broker behind the open city, has died. Gunned down and badly wounded three weeks ago while negotiating a prisoner exchange, Bates has survived only by a son. But the burning
0: question at this point becomes, what will be the fate of Los Angeles? The death of Nathan Bates leaves L.A. in chaos as Diana wastes no time invading the city, not even waiting for the approval of Charles. But Charles has come up with a scheme to get rid of Diana by marrying her. Under visitor law, his family status allows him to select a bride who must then travel back to the homeworld to bear offspring. After the lizard wedding ceremony, a jealous Lydia laces Diana's cup with cat poison. But sensing this, Diana switches cups, leaving Charles a dried-out green husk of his former self, E.K. Laxton Foyame. Meanwhile, seemingly on another show, Julie rushes off to help a friend whose wife is going through labor, while Lieutenant James stages an attack on Club Creole's previously hidden underground level. Kyle then has a standoff with Lieutenant James and his troops protecting Julie and the family, while trying to impart difficult lessons to young John about the realities of war. Episode written by supervising producer Garner Simmons. Guest-starring Terrence Knox and Darlene Carr as Julie's friends Alan and Joanne. Gaila Jacobson as mothership apothecary Marta and Ina Freed. Credited as Ian Freed, who had a run in the mid-80s playing the young friend of a main character on shows like Alice, Silver Spoons, Different Strokes, and Mr. Belvedere. Hi, Mr. Belvedere. Hello, Danny. Is Wesley here? Yes, come on in. Hiya, champ. How's it going?
2: Well, I got eight, but other than that, I'm doing pretty good.
0: (laughs) In watching this episode, I have the same response as did Krusty the Clown upon seeing the Eastern European cartoon... Worker, and Parasite. What the hell was that? The Resistance story was decent, but with the visitors, we not only enter full-on preposterous dynasty mode with the backstabbing goings-on of their power structure on board the mothership, but they have become nothing but a joke and source of endless puns and visual gags. The lizard buffet at the wedding, cat poison complete with cartoon cat label with the no symbol, musk of rat perfume, even the entire wedding between Charles and Diana being itself a jokey reference to the real-life UK royals married in 1981 garner simmons who had kept the series going until the mid-season pickup was rewarded with being told he would be replaced with manimal's donald boyle as showrunner in response he seemed to make the mothership storyline as preposterous as possible and even snuck in a kiss my ass during the wedding ceremony in the visitor language as a jab to the network I'm not sure if this was visible on the original airing, but in Charles' quarters you can clearly see where the walls of the set end, revealing the soundstage lighting in the background. We also see what is clearly a Godzilla toy, painted white on the wedding buffet table, crawling with tarantulas, worms, birds, and mice. The several actors wearing full head lizard masks are inexplicably also now wearing mohawks, likely in an effort to conceal the split seam of the mask. Meanwhile, Elizabeth now also adds Total Recall to her power set, complete with speaking in other people's voices, like Wonder Woman used to do. And Robert England delivers his funniest willyism yet. However, you really start to see budget cuts here, as the massive invasion of L.A. is basically footage recycled from earlier episodes and a lot of sound effects and the resistance sets up shop in yet another abandoned movie studio. Coming in consistently third in time slot, NBC Here has moved the show to 9-8 Central against Street Hawk on ABC and Dallas on CBS in an effort to beat Street Hawk in the ratings and come in second in the time slot. The Champion, Episode 14, air date February 8, 1985. As of this episode, not only do we get a new opening narrated by Danny Dark, but the Freedom Network reports are also dropped.
1: They arrived in 50 motherships, offering their friendship and advanced technology to Earth. donovan and juliet Parrish infiltrated their ranks and soon discovered some startling secrets
2: shipping food
0: Donovan and Kyle are running drugs to the Tucson resistance, but are pulled over by some highway robbers in the form of local law enforcement, who collaborate with the visitors. During a shootout, they are saved by a local friendly, a young widow named Kathy. Donovan hangs around long enough to help her and her daughter Jessie establish a local resistance to fight the visitors and the corrupt local law but Lieutenant James soon arrives to complicate matters. Meanwhile, again on seemingly a completely different show, Lydia is put on trial for Charles' murder. As Diana prepares to vaporize Lydia, new Inspector General Philip arrives and stays the execution. Philip is Martin's brother, or at least developed from a mutual zygote. This results in ritual combat between Diana and Lydia, complete with weapons that resemble Vulcan Lerpas. Philip stops the combat and restores the status quo. Diana must once again report to Lydia, who reports to Philip, promising six more weeks of bitchiness on the mothership. Malak Khan Pombi. Episode written by Paul F. Edwards. Guest-starring Deborah Wakeham as Kathy... Sherry Stoner as Jessie, she played Willie Olsen's young wife on the last season of Little House, and Hugh Gillen who seemed to make a career out of playing rural sheriffs in the 1980s. Lots to discuss here as we effectively have a new version of the show courtesy of the dreaded Network Retooling. A new more serious opening narrated by Danny Dark recaps a simplified version of the original story extending the intro from 90 seconds to an incredible two full minutes long. Don Boyle is added to the supervising producer credit, as Garner Simmons stuck out the episode to show his replacement The Ropes, which I'm sure he loved. Our now greatly reduced list of characters are down to Diana, Lydia, Elizabeth, Willie, Julie, Donovan, and Kyle and three new names show up with the odd credit of science fiction consultants. Michael Chase Walker, Jeffrey B. Walker, and Thomas Scortia. Stay tuned for the next segment to find out just who these people were. As far as the Resistance storyline, this plotline was suspiciously like Battlestar Galactica's The Lost Warrior, which itself was an adaptation of the classic Western Shane. Julie wears a neck brace, and a reference is made implying a recent injury, but no further explanation for this is given. Either Fay Grant had a real-life injury, or this was a remnant of a deleted plot point. On the mothership side, to oversee the silliness of the fallout over the murder of Charles, Frank Ashmore returns as the identical twin of the deceased, Martin. While it's welcome to see Ashmore again, the tired soap opera trope of an actor returning as a previously unknown identical twin is not. Here, since it's established that the visitors can assume any human appearance with their synthetic masks, Diana, recognizing Philip, and even commenting on how similar he looks to Martin, makes this doubly absurd. The Wildcats, episode 15, air date February 15th, 1985. Julie Parrish is running a makeshift resistance hospital outside the city fighting an epidemic of diphtheria. With Donovan busy on a mission, Kyle and Willie go find the Wildcats, a group of young people living in the hills, for help in raiding a visitor medical depot. But when they find out the medicine is fake, it means one of the Wildcats is a visitor spy. One of the Wildcats also develops feelings for Willie, unaware he is a visitor. Meanwhile on the mothership, in the next twist of the investigation of Charles' death, Philip cites galactic law. A supreme commander's murderer is to be buried at space with him, and if none is found, all suspects will accompany the commander on his final journey. Philip's investigation leads him to Marta, ship pharmacist who provided the cat poison to Lydia. Diana and Lydia reluctantly team up to frame Marta to exonerate themselves. And Marta is launched into space alongside the dried-out husk of Charles. (coughs) Mogla Blimar Segul Episode written by David Braff British actor Peter Elbling is brought on for his three-episode stint as visitor Oswald. At the last minute before filming his first scene, director Jean Floria told him to do it gay, right before shouting, action. With no preparation, Elbing delivered an annoyingly stereotypical, lispy, effeminate performance. Are you sure you want her to go out alive?
2: Not only alive, but conscious. I don't want her in a pro-corp haze. Yes, but I've never prepared a funeral service for anyone who was... Still breathing. Well, then this will be a memorable first. Yes, but you see... No buts, Oswald. If she stops breathing, so do you.
0: This type of performance is a throwback to the Hays Code era of Hollywood. Since outright depictions of homosexual characters were forbidden by the code, characters began to be coded as gay, with the use of effeminate movements and facial expressions and manners of speaking. Think... Peter Lorre in The Maltese Falcon. David Braff's title might be a callback to 1974's Pray for the Wildcats, a TV movie which has now become a cult classic, primarily due to the performance of Andy Griffith playing against type.
2: He just bought himself a long walk home.
0: The use of an epidemic as a plot point is interesting as disease typically follows war. Diphtheria is a bacterial infection with a lethality rate that can approach 10 to 20 percent. Symptoms can range from sore throat, fever, and a barking cough to organ damage and open skin lesions. Fortunately, young children in most countries are vaccinated against diphtheria as part of the DTaP vaccine, and adults might receive a booster as part of a tetanus shot. When Donovan arrives via airplane with the medicine, we again hear the balloon theme from V-Day in the Dennis McCarthy episode scoring. Even after repeat viewings, I found no reason in the narrative that Donovan needed to ditch his plane and skydive with the medicine. The scene was written this way, likely to be able to reuse skydiving footage already shot for the final battle and to avoid the expense of showing the plane landing. At this point in the series, these cost-cutting measures were beginning to be commonplace. Late in the episode, when reluctant visitor spy Tony rams his car into the oncoming visitor vehicles, an explosion is rather poorly composited into the shot. Even though it is obvious no collision really took place. On the production side, this and the following episode went to filming only 5 weeks or less ahead of air date, meaning a rushed production schedule. The Littlest Dragon, episode 16, air date February 22, 1985. Diana's latest trap to kill Donovan and the others is foiled by fifth columnist Robert, working on the mothership bridge. Fleeing with his pregnant wife, Glinda, Robert runs to the resistance and is tracked by Philip. Diana sends combat expert Angela along with him, who has a history with Philip, but this is part of a scheme to rid herself of both Philip and Lydia. With the Freedom Fighters cornered and Kyle injured, Philip, who has believed all along that Donovan killed his brother Martin, must be convinced of the truth. Meanwhile, the arrival of a new life brings hope to a discouraged Willie. Episode written by David Abramowitz. Guest-starring Brett Cullen and Wendy Fulton as Robert and Glinda, and Leslie Beavis as Angela. You may remember her turns on Dallas, The Young and the Restless, or as Commander at Zircon in 1987's Spaceballs. Oh, yes, sir. Snotty beamed me twice last night. It was wonderful. Here, the reptilian baby prop from the final battle returns. And while there are moments of comic relief and mothership goings-on, the ridiculousness is toned down a great deal in this episode which even gave us a Star Trek-like resolution to the Philip Donovan conflict. But this finally coherent story, after three weeks of absurdity, was too little, too late for the flailing series. The week after this episode, NBC ran the Paul Krasny TV movie Time Bomb instead of V, spurring rumors of cancellation. V's season-to-date ranking was revealed to be 62 out of 81 shows on the air. Conflicting news stories began running regarding the fate of the series. Some newspapers were reporting it had indeed been canceled, while officially ABC asked the public to pay no attention to those reporters in the corner and that V was almost certain to air right through April, as the network was satisfied with its performance against Dallas since its move to 9, 8 central, even though it had only beaten Street Hawk once in the ratings. However, where there is smoke, there is often fire, and it is likely the production had indeed received word of cancellation from NBC in between the air dates of episodes 16 and 17, based on the script date on the unfilmed episode 20. War of Illusions, Episode Seventeen, Air Date March Eighth, Nineteen Eighty Five. Diana is in bed with Lieutenant James as they pillow talk about a new weapon to use against the resistance, the Battlesphere, which the leader will use to coordinate a massive blitzkrieg attack on the American Southwest. Philip, now a new uneasy ally, warns Donovan and the others who will try to prepare. Meanwhile, the mothership's computers have been disrupted by Henry Atkins, a teenage hacker working at a corner bodega with his father. When Henry's father is taken prisoner, the team must free him, as well as stop the Blitz by breaking into science frontiers and using their uplink to the mothership to hack the Battlesphere. Episode written by John Simmons, who has very few credits on IMDb, for Night of Horror... Stephen King's World of Horror, and Poltergeist, The Legacy. Guest-starring Conrad Janus and Josh Richman. This was Richman's first acting credit, and he still acts occasionally. Janus is likely best remembered for his role as Mindy's father on Mork and Mindy. Visitor Oswald returns, and Lydia implies that he conducts perverted sexual experiments on humans and we also find that he selects male visitors to be Diana's consorts, as he presents three shirtless specimens for her inspection. Dialogue here between Oswald and Diana hinted at some falling out between her and Lieutenant James, but this was never shown. At the party to celebrate the Battlesphere, we see other previously unseen alien races. The Battlesphere prop itself is a novelty plasma ball, Often marketed at the time as light spheres, these were quite expensive at the time, sold for around $1,000. The first inexpensive consumer version I found was called the Eye of the Storm, introduced at the 1987 Consumer Electronics Show, and sold for $179 retail, about a $500 toy today. Dr. Atkins and his son use a Tandy TRS-80 Model 100 to hack into the mothership via RS-232 port from their corner store. I guess the mothership had telephone service. A two-year-old model at the time, the Model 100, also seen on WizKids, is widely known as the first popular notebook computer. I'll also note my interpretations about whatever is going on with the computers in the plot are from a modern standpoint and not things that are actually stated in the episode. Yes, not only were V's concepts of gigantic motherships hovering over Earth's major cities, as well as the synchronized countdown, later used as plot elements in 1996's Independence Day, here we also see a laptop computer used to hack into a mothership to disrupt their operations. The same thing done at the climax of that film. And like that film, it's best we don't think too hard about the Battlesphere plot device. Are we to really believe sky fighter pilots couldn't fly in formation and fire on ground targets without some new, special device installed on the mothership that linked all the way back to the homeworld nearly nine light-years away? Pilots flew in V-formation even during World War I without the use of computers. When the Skyfighters' flight patterns are disrupted by Henry's hacking, we are treated to nearly every previously shown shot of them crashing during the too Many series But at this late point in the series, the production was recycling even non special effects scenes as cost-cutting measures. Early in the episode, Lieutenant James orders a shock trooper to inspect a van, which was originally seen in episode 13. In the final scene when Diana fumes over yet another defeat, Lydia snarks, well, better luck next time. This was recycled from the then-yet-unseen episode 3, with Lydia even appearing in her old uniform with the puffy gold shoulders, a completely different look than the one she now wears. The interior set for the corner store is also the same one used for the print shop in episode 11. We also see Nathan Bates' old office redressed as a computer lab at Science Frontiers. The Secret Underground, Episode 18, Airdate March 15, 1985 When a fifth columnist steals and hides the list of resistance leaders aboard the mothership, Philip arranges for Donovan and Julie to come aboard the ship to look for it. Once there, Julie finds an old flame being forced to do biological weapons research for the visitors. Meanwhile, Lydia's young brother Nigel arrives for the celebration of Ramelan. However, this has been arranged by Diana for him to be sacrificed for the holiday, forcing Lydia to ally with Philip to stop it. Episode written by David Braff and Collie Sibber Sibber has very few credits, but include Gunsmoke, The Waltons, and How the West Was Won. Looking into the credits of Colley Sibber made me realize this was a pseudonym, as I found no modern records of any such person. However, there was a playwright and poet with that name that lived in early 18th century London, known for having written what is generally considered the first sentimental comedy. A suggestion by Clayton Barr that Sibber could be series executive story consultant Paul F. Edwards led me to cross-reference his credits, and I indeed found overseas writing credits of three How the West Was Won episodes carried Edwards' name, while the domestic version listed Collie Sibber. Of course, all this detective work could have been avoided had I simply consulted the script cover page for the episode first. John Calvin appears as Dr. Maitland, Julie's past love interest. You might remember him as Reverend Willie Tinboom on Tales of the Gold Monkey, who liked to bless the native women. Ken Olant was Nigel, who might be best known for his role of Zachary Stone on Super Force. The plot point of sneaking Donovan and Julie, the two most recognizable resistance leaders, aboard the gigantic mothership to search for a a three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk, is preposterous. But it did give us a pretty funny scene where they unmask and reveal themselves to be visitors to Diana, supposedly wearing two masks. But by this point, all the masking and unmasking comes across as cartoonish and unbelievable, which is no surprise as Alan Fama and Marvin Westmore were no longer doing makeup for the series as of episode 15. We did get a mention in dialogue that Donovan and Julie are no longer a thing, and Oswald returns for his final appearance this time with an off-screen assistant decorating the visitor rec room for the celebration of Ramelan. And it is clear the writers were leaning into Oswald's implied orientation. Are we awake up there? Yes, we're uh, awake. Well, forward then, that way. All right, Oswald, all right. Well, up a little, and now, oh, hello? I hear Obviously, you.
2: Obviously, Oswald, you don't understand
0: and I've lost count of the number of Sky Fighters the Resistance has absconded with. They must have a small fleet hidden somewhere in L.A. by this time. The Return, Episode 19, Air Date March 22, 1985 Lieutenant James and his troops have the Resistance on the run, cornered and outgunned with Elizabeth's powers mysteriously not working. All seems lost when the mothership broadcasts in an announcement, the immediate end of all hostilities. Seemingly too good to be true, motherships around the world recall all personnel and leave the planet, while the L.A. mothership remains. To the ire of Diana, Philip announces he ordered the ceasefire under direct authority of the leader himself, who is traveling to Earth for a peace summit. Back at the resistance hideout, the leader mentally reaches out across space and touches Elizabeth's mind and speaks through her.
1: Guys,
0: get in here!
1: Ate she
0: Philip arrives and confirms he has been in contact with the leader and over time he has not only encouraged him to make peace but that Elizabeth is the key to uniting the two species. Elizabeth then speaks of cosmic concepts she says are beyond human understanding and that the leader has called her to the mothership. On board, Donovan, Julie, and Kyle take a leisurely tour of the ship, while Willie reconnects with Thelma, his arranged bride he thought he'd never see again. When Philip invites Donovan to a friendly sword match, Diana sees the opportunity and has Lieutenant James charge the swords. While neither is harmed, the discovery of live weapons casts an aura of distrust over the situation. Later, Elizabeth's entire personality seems to change as she increasingly becomes emotionally distant from Kyle and the others. Philip begins to teach her about the history of their people while they wait for the leader to personally arrive. In the landing bay, Diana and Lieutenant James have staged a false flag attack against the leader's shuttle. But Philip had arranged a decoy, Exposed, Diana and her Loyalists take the bridge, and in a seeming repeat of events from the final battle, rigs the ship's reactors to reach critical mass as a de facto self-destruct. Unable to penetrate the bridge, Philip reaches out to the leader through Elizabeth, who telekinetically opens the blast door to the bridge. Hand-to-hand combat ensues, with Diana and Lieutenant James defeated the apparent pleasure of the leader who again speaks through Elizabeth. Good. Very good. In the landing bay the leader's real shuttle arrives but instead of him disembarking Elizabeth is mentally called to board it. In custody, Diana privately reveals to Lieutenant James she has placed a bomb on board. After the shuttle leaves Donovan and Julie realize Kyle is missing presumably having snuck on board the shuttle. Episode written by David Abramowitz and Don Boyle. Based on a story by David Braff and Paul F. Edwards, using his collie Sibber pseudonym. Marilyn Jones guests as Thelma, Willie's arranged bride. A working actress all over TV of this era, you might remember her from the Season 1 episode of Monsters.
1: Oh, great. It's Monsters, our favorite show.
0: Called Holly's House, as a children's TV show hostess that gives voice to the life-size puppet, Holly. The voice of the leader was uncredited. Plenty of unexplained and hanging plot points, poorly staged scenes, and unfinished concepts in this episode. Taking things in order, the by now extremely recognizable stretch of Warner Lot, known as Hennessy Street or Tenement Alley is again used at the beginning of this episode. Where the fleet of motherships went is unanswered. As Lieutenant James stages the false flag attack, a previously never-seen device is introduced that looks like a pyramid with a black globe in the middle of it. This apparently turns featureless visitor head masks into ones with fully detailed, realistic faces, complete with hair, as they are applied to two visitors that will pose as human resistance. It seems really odd to introduce this new concept this late in the series. Then, as these two masked visitors are shot down with standard hand lasers in the landing bay, a bizarre line by Kyle is added in post. <laughs>
1: are disintegrated, now we'll never know who they are."
0: Even though the two were clearly not disintegrated in the scene. When Diana takes the bridge, a plot point of Julie and Willie attempting to find access through the ventilation shafts is just abandoned. And what was the point of red light in the leader's shuttle meant to represent? The leader himself, as if he was an incorporeal being? That's not what the script for episode 20 presents. The conclusion that Kyle must have stowed away on the shuttle is sloppily executed. He clearly just walks out of frame, stage left, only seconds before the shuttle lifts off, while it is in full view of everyone intently watching. Exactly how is Kyle supposed to have snuck on board? It almost seems as this entire episode was shot from an early draft of a script and rushed through production, before revisions and corrections are made to fix plot holes and continuity issues. This may have been why Paul Edwards had his name taken off the episode and the previous one. There has never been a resolution to this cliffhanger story presented in this final aired episode. Following this airing, Blattsinger Productions lobbied NBC to allow a final wrap-up miniseries or a TV movie, but this was never approved. Blatt Singer went on to work on the TV movies Breaker with Carl Weathers and Badge of the Assassin with James Woods and Yaphet Kato, both airing in 1985. Following a couple of additional TV movies over the next two years, their partnership seemed to fizzle out and the pair went their separate ways. However, there was indeed a script written for the never filmed Episode 20. The Attack The Unfilmed Episode 20 Script Date February 28, 1985 Having snuck on board, seeing an empty shuttle, Kyle is transported to another dimension, while Elizabeth is with the leader, a massive, four-armed creature. He has told a backstory about the visitors ancient leaders who combined their power into an artifact called the Ankh which was broken and distributed to various locations one of them being Earth Back on board the mothership Diana has managed to break free from custody just as the shuttle explodes In the wake of the shuttle's destruction power plays take place on the bridge and Diana again places herself in command alongside Lydia, framing the resistance for her latest attack on the leader. With Donovan, Julie, and Willie in the brig, Thelma brings them a cake with explosives concealed inside. Right before they blow the cell doors, Kyle materializes and rejoins his friends. When they reach the landing bay, Donovan is wounded, while Julie is shockingly disintegrated. Diana orders a ceremonial all-out attack on Earth, or at least Los Angeles, while she and Lieutenant James revel in the destruction. During all this, Donovan, Kyle, and Willie, having escaped the landing bay with Philip, find themselves trapped by Diana in a trash compactor. Meanwhile, Elizabeth struggles to free herself of the leader's influence so she can save her friends. Through force of will, she leaves the interdimensional limbo and materializes inside the trash compactor, telekinetically stopping the giant mechanism and falls unconscious, temporarily depleted. The group again makes for the shuttle bay with Kyle carrying Elizabeth. As they take a Skyfighter, Willie shoots Lieutenant James, who falls off the catwalk to the floor below. The group escapes, with Diana herself pursuing in a Skyfighter, who shoots them down. As they flee the wreckage, Elizabeth directs them over a particular hill, where they see none other than Ham Tyler in a road warrior-type vehicle. Welcome, you raggedy bunch of fugitives. On board the mothership, the power dynamic again appears to return to the status quo, as Philip has managed to maintain his cover as a fifth columnist. However, the leader appears to Diana and commissions her to recapture the Star Child. because if she obtains the Onks, Elizabeth's power would exceed that of his. To that end, Diana must steal the syllabus of the ancients in Elizabeth's possession, which relates, in mystical allegory, the Onks' location on Earth. Back on Earth, Willie reads from the syllabus. Follow the wind for the source of all knowledge. To a place that lasts forever, where your heart will sing. Donovan, Willie, Kyle, and Elizabeth, board Han's vehicle and ride off into the distance. Written by David Braff and Paul F. Edwards, based on a story by Don Boyle. The attack only exists as a first draft script and it thus contains typos, internal continuity errors, and unresolved plot points that presumably would have been resolved as the writers reworked it. However, work on it ceased when the series was cancelled by NBC. What Remains provides a story that foreshadowed a dramatic change of focus for the series if it had continued to a second season. Observations from the story First, entire scenes and story elements seem lifted directly from the Star Wars films. Not only the trash compactor scene, but also the aspect of Elizabeth being in a battle of wills with the leader while desiring to save her friends is evocative of Luke being in the presence of the Emperor in Return of the Jedi. The fact that a line of dialogue implies that possibly unknown to Elizabeth, the leader is her grandfather. Again evokes the Skywalker saga from the Star Wars films and raises the future possibility of a Luke, I am your father type reveal. Undoubtedly, all of these were intentional choices on the part of Braff and Edwards, who previously were lifting plots from World War II movies to incorporate into episodes, while here going in much more of a sci fi fantasy direction. What an ignominious death for Julie, the founder of the LA Resistance. Instead of an episode where the characters deal with the loss, as in the hero, Julie's death is just another story beat in a very busy episode, not even being mentioned in dialogue at the end. The fate of Thelma is not revealed, and the appearance of Ham Tyler coincidentally showing up where the group crashed is unexplained. Also, the syllabus is introduced into the plot at the very end with no explanation as to how Elizabeth has it. You would think this was an opportunity to tie into Zahn, the visitor religion, but that story element seems long forgotten under Don Boyle, who was now the showrunner. The nature of the leader remains unexplained. Diana's actions with the bomb revealed she even seemed ignorant of his powers. Were we to interpret the point of red light in the shuttle to be him as if he was an incorporeal being? Does he hang out most of the time in interdimensional limbo? Was he even the same species as the visitors? Of course, it's impossible to interpret how he would have eventually been depicted on screen due to budgetary and storytelling reasons but the script description and whole aspect of Elizabeth and later Diana being transported to his presence has the feel of 1978's Doctor Strange to me. In that telefilm, written and directed by Kids Phil Daguerre, Stephen Strange traveled to the astral plane where the nameless one had commanded Morgan Le Fay to do his bidding far more mystical sci-fi claptrap than would have ever been allowed if Kenneth Johnson had still been running things. In addition, the refocusing of the plot around a mystical artifact hidden on Earth would have the effect of undermining all the original themes of V. It is clear the second season would have been a very familiar type of science fiction show, where characters wander the Earth in search of a MacGuffin, helping people they find along the way while being pursued by Diana. A formula already very familiar in this era, with series like The Fantastic Journey, Planet of the Apes, and especially Logan's Run. The incorporation of a post-apocalyptic vehicle trope evokes things like Ark 2, Damnation Alley, and, yes, The Road Warrior, outright referenced in the script. The series went into reruns on May 17, 1985, when NBC aired the first two episodes back-to-back, followed by the debut of the previously pulled third episode the following week. V, the series, finished the season, ranking 57th place with a 13.2 Nielsen rating and an 18 share. This placed it alongside other canceled newcomers like It's Your Move, Charles in Charge, and the now virtually forgotten sitcom E.R. What was at the bottom of the barrel that season? Aftermash, Hawaiian Heat, Otherworld, and Silver Spoons tying for 74th place, Hot Pursuit, and Primetime Soap, Behringers, coming in 77th as the lowest-rated show of the season.
1: DC, let's all be there. If you are after loads of life and love and laughter, lift your eyes and see the best there is to see. let's all be there. come together in the moments that they share. let's all be there.
0: Behind the Scenes Yes, with fingers seemingly on the button, when ratings came in for V, the final battle, NBC decided to go ahead with a weekly series. Network head Brandon Tartikoff officially announced it on May 10th at the Network Upfronts, where the TV networks present their fall lineups to affiliates and advertisers. V was to be the lead-in show for an all-new Friday night lineup, followed by new police series Hunter and Miami Vice. However, some bean counting evidently went on behind closed doors ahead of this announcement. Recall that Kenneth Johnson had told NBC a weekly series would be prohibitively expensive to produce, favoring an episodic TV movie format that he could turn out perhaps four times a year. Budgetary considerations were always an issue with every incarnation of V. According to series showrunner number two, Garner Simmons, Warner originally wanted to spend no more than $1 million per hour for the first miniseries. But during production, Johnson convinced them to increase the budget and even approve ever increasing cost overruns, with it eventually coming in at $13.7 million, or $3.22 million per screen hour. Taking advantage of already available sets, props, costumes, and special effects footage, the Johnsonless Final Battle was able to also come in at around $14 million but stretched to six hours, or $2.33 million per screen hour. Obviously, production costs in this range would be prohibitively expensive for a weekly TV series. According to the narrative Garner Simmons provided for Dan Kopp's 2017 book, Fascist Lizards from Outer Space, the series was something of a last-minute addition to the fall 1984 lineup announced at those May upfronts. Warner Television was having a bad year. While they had produced a slew of TV pilots for the three networks, Simmons recalled eleven, I found record of six. None of them were picked up as a series, and Warner would have no new shows sold that year. Their only shows in production would have been Scarecrow and Mrs. King and Night Court, with Alice and the Dukes of Hazzard winding up their final seasons. Desperate for a series sale to a network, Warner VP of Development Scott Siegler wanted to sell NBC on a V weekly series for that fall and attempted to broker a deal between the network and studio, but it would all come down to budget. Garner Simmons Warners ran the numbers and told him they would need something in the neighborhood of $1.3 million per episode to make things work. Siegler said he'd get back to them as soon as he had a deal. When he finally called to say he'd sold it, Warners asked what NBC had agreed to pay. Siegler replied, $850,000 per episode. And Warners, s*** a brick. At the same time, with nothing else on its docket, Warners could not say no. So instead, they drew up a budget for the new series V that required production to bring the series in for $850,000 per episode. The new series was announced, and with Blatt Singer Productions still running things, a writing team was hastily assembled in late May. Simmons was one of the first people involved, having just come off of the Warner produced The Yellow Rose, a canceled NBC series from the 1983-84 season. Writer-producer Paul Monash, known for Peyton Place, Salem's Lot, as well as producing theatrical films Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Slaughterhouse-Five, and Carrie, was announced early as a producer. However, he ended up with creative consultant credit instead. Brian Taggart, one of the writers for The Final Battle, was brought back. David Braff, previously known for his work on Eight is Enough and The Fall Guy, and Stephen E. D'Souza, who last worked on The Powers of Matthew Starr, rounded out the first writing team. Under significant time pressure, the team were expected to deliver five scripts by mid-July, so production could begin by the end of that month to meet the late October air date. Monash was tasked with the first script, to bridge events from where we left off in the final battle, while D'Souza worked on the second. Braff, Simmons, and Taggart would each contribute a script to get the initial five episodes written and ready for the deadline. Then work on the next batch of scripts would begin so they could be ready when the first five were shot. However, problems began well before production started. When the writers arrived on the Warner lot, the first hurdle was the unworkable budget of $850,000 NBC had agreed to. As Simmons explains, The day we arrived on the Warner's lot, I ran into our line producer, Dean O'Brien, who was livid. The studio had handed him a pattern budget that was indeed locked at $850,000. But to achieve this unrealistic number, the amount budgeted for sets wardrobe, props, VFX, were all zero. Apparently, Scott Siegler had reasoned in selling the series that since it was to deal with a clandestine group of freedom fighters taking the fight to the alien overlords in the streets of LA, the show could be shot practically, i.e. no standing sets, etc. And since the miniseries had cannibalized the original Ken Johnson miniseries, so would the new series by recycling all costumes, props, etc. Given that all the scripts were already in progress, this would have meant throwing out everything and starting over, which in turn would mean not making our air dates. Clearly, something had to give. In 1984, the average hour-long series cost seven to $800,000 to produce. The episode budget of Hill Street Blues was $925,000. To produce V as a weekly series, it was estimated another four dollars to $500,000 per episode would be needed. After a series of budget meetings, a more realistic budget was hammered out. And by mid-October, EP Daniel Blatt was spouting to the press, This will probably be the most expensive show on television. $1 million per episode even though we've been able to trim some of the costs. V thus joined a growing list of weekly series that claimed to be the most expensive ever to produce, which at the time included both Kenneth Johnson's Cliffhangers in 1979 and Super Train from that same year. Amazing Stories was added to the list of $1 million episodes in 1985, Star Trek The Next Generation in 1987, as well as The Flash in 1990. Little did we know at the time, growing budgets for ensemble casts would soon grow to astronomical amounts for some hit series in their later seasons, such as ER at $13 million per episode, Seinfeld at $4 million, and Frasier at $5.2 million. Indeed, sets, costumes, and props from the final battle had been saved by Warner for use on future productions. This included Stage 25's massive Mothership landing base set, which occupied the entire soundstage in between production of The Final Battle and the weekly series, Build to NBC. However, when the budget for D'Souza's first draft script for Episode 2 was estimated by Dean O'Brien, it came in at $2.2 million. This prompted a rewrite to rein in costs with Start of Filming only a week away. When NBC's VP of Current Programming, Jeff Sagansky, returned from a vacation, he asked to see the scripts for the first two episodes, intended to be produced as a two-hour premiere movie. According to Simmons' account, Sagansky rang up EP Robert Singer in the middle of the night, calling the first two scripts a pile of unreadable bullshit. D'Souza had purportedly rewritten both Monash's Episode one script as well as his own. The next morning, Singer and Blatt announced that D'Souza had been removed from the production, and Garner Simmons would be given the weekend to rewrite the first two scripts to the satisfaction of NBC. If by Monday morning Sagansky remained unconvinced that we had a series worth shooting, the series would be shut down and canceled. Simmons relates that he worked through the weekend on the rewrites, and on Monday was told Sagansky approved and V was saved. With D'Souza no longer involved, I was elevated to supervising producer. The budgetary savings from his leaving was split between production and writing, allowing me to hire two additional staff writers, David Abramowitz and Paul Edwards, both of whom I had worked with on Yellow Rose. Thus, the first major crisis was averted. However, Stephen D'Souza tells something of a different story to Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia for their 1996 book, Science Fiction Television Series. He relates a narrative of being a driving creative force early in series development, tasked with what he called an impossible situation, to pick up the story where the final battle left off. To create a detente setting for the characters in the story, D'Souza turned to 1942's Casablanca. Casablanca, many people say, is one of the greatest art pictures ever made. It works well, has great drama, because the cafe that Rick has is a neutral ground, where the Nazi and the Freedom Fighters meet on equal ground. For the series to work, you've got to be able to have the heroes and villains get in the same room to have scenes together. So if you have a full-scale war like they had in the last two to three hours of the first miniseries, they can never have scenes with each other. Thus, the open-city concept for Los Angeles was born, with Club Creole being V's answer to Rick's. Souza admits he got network pushback for some early story elements, such as the Jack Ruby-style assassination attempt on Diana, as well as the destruction of the mothership that had been in human possession. Perhaps speaking of Jeff Sagansky, he claims an unnamed executive suggested he hand-wave away Diana's escape by using previously unestablished alien powers in order to save money and time on the production. Likewise, the executive questioned the storytelling need to get rid of the mothership, which gives the humans a significant advantage to have it in their possession and to be able to reverse engineer the technology of the visitors. So the network executive said, Don't even bother with that. Our audience won't even think of that. I said, Are you serious? You've got to say that this is being examined and taken apart. You have to pick it up at that point. That was our plan, and we spent the first hour getting rid of the mothership. It was like a magic ring. You never give your heroes a magic ring or there's no series. The fact they think that our audience is too stupid to think that through indicates the score that they have of the audience. While he is only credited as supervising producer for the first two episodes, D'Souza related working on the first six episodes, at which point, he states, he left over creative differences. The network came to me and said, We want a higher rating. We want you to have complete, total war because these were the highest ratings of the last two hours of the first miniseries. I wanted the show to take place in a neutral place like Vichy France during World War II. I wanted a middle ground where small groups of commandos and guerrillas would engage each other. That can be done. I was overruled. I left the show. While all this early drama behind series creation was going on, Additional casting for the weekly series took place rapidly in the midsummer of 1984. The new faces included 32-year-old British actress June Chadwick as Lydia, who had been seen on that year's This Is Spinal Tap. The addition of the Lydia character seemed to evoke the Diana-Pamela dynamic from the final battle, which was noted by Jane Badler, as she told Dennis Fisher in a 1984 Starlog interview. It's very similar to the part that Sarah Douglas played in the second miniseries. She's also wicked and power-hungry. Diana and Lydia are definitely competitive. There's a real distrust between us. Off-camera, June's my soulmate. From the moment we met, we just loved each other. Following V, Chadwick would join the cast of Riptide for its third season. 20-year-old Jennifer Cook was the mutated star child Elizabeth. A relative unknown, Cook had been appearing in TV commercials as early as age nine. After a handful of minor TV roles, she was screen testing for Aaron Spelling's miniseries, Hollywood Wives. While in L.A., she was invited to read for V on a Thursday, got the part, and was told filming began Tuesday of the following week. Lane Smith didn't even have to read for his role of Nathan Bates. The 48-year-old had been a character actor on stage and screen for nearly 20 years, and had just finished his run on the Broadway play Glengarry Glen Ross. Packed and ready to leave for a needed extended vacation, his agent called him with the news that NBC was interested in casting him on a series. After he got back from dinner the same evening, the offer was confirmed and he would need to fly out to L.A. to begin filming the day after next. Years after V, his role in comic book pop culture was cemented, playing Perry White on four seasons of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Smith died in 2005 at age 69. V was 23-year-old Jeff Yeager's acting debut. Jeff and younger brother Kevin were both Monster Kids from Decatur, Illinois, who would build those Aurora Monster Model Kits together. Jeff's antics and mishaps, making himself up as a Planet of the Apes character, Mummy, or Werewolf, concerned his parents and even got him in trouble with the police once. But it was Kevin who caught a more serious case of the makeup effects bug, and later, when Jeff was majoring in theater at OSU, Kevin was in Mom's garage making masks for a costume company. While Jeff went into acting, Kevin stayed behind the scenes, and through legendary makeup artist Rick Baker, arranged to apprentice under makeup veteran Greg Canum. Soon he was working with one of Jeff's V co-stars, Doing makeup effects on The Nightmare on Elm Street films and subsequent series Freddy's Nightmares. He has worked steadily in the industry for over 35 years on many films, as well as on 234 episodes of the hit series Bones. His notable work includes the makeup for Weird Al Yankovic for his 1988 fat video. Makeup effects for 1997's Face-Off and Starship Troopers, and Dana Carvey's characters for 2002's The Master of Disguise. Prior to V, Jeff Yeager had never before ridden a motorcycle and had to be trained in motocross by his stunt double, since many scenes depicted his character of Kyle Bates riding a dirt bike both on and off-road. Following V, Jeff had regular series roles on the Linda Lavin vehicle Room for Two, the short lived UPN series Live Shot, and on HBO's Six Feet Under. Legendary real life newsman Howard K. Smith seen in the original V miniseries, started to be used at the beginning of episodes with the third airing, delivering Freedom Network reports from around the globe, reminding the viewer of the larger worldwide fight against the visitors. Early in his career, Smith had been sent to Berlin by United Press, where he joined CBS Radio under their head of European operations, Edward R. Moreau. In the years leading up to the U.S. entering World War II, Smith interviewed Adolf Hitler, SS leader Heinrich Himmler, and propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels. He was one of the very last reporters to leave Germany, barely escaping to Switzerland the very day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Four days later, Hitler declared war on the U.S. Throughout the 1940s, Smith reported for CBS as chief European correspondent visiting most European nations, including ones behind the Iron Curtain. He compiled his experiences and thoughts into a 1949 book, The State of Europe, where he was critical of both American and Russian policies. For his trouble, he found himself blacklisted in the 1950s when Red Channels named him as an alleged communist sympathizer. His 1961 report, who speaks for Birmingham, revealed the conspiracy between a corrupt police commissioner and the KKK to commit violence against the Freedom Riders and people of color, which was personally witnessed by Smith. He ended his report with the quote attributed to Edmund Burke. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. But this was cut by CBS, who subsequently fired him editorializing. Smith commented on his firing in 2001. They said it was against the rules to take sides on a controversial issue. I said, I wish you had told me that during World War II when I took sides against Hitler. Smith then worked for ABC News and extensively covered the 1972 presidential campaign. Even though his commentaries were becoming increasingly conservative, Backing the Vietnam War and Vice President Agnew's criticism of the news media, he called for Nixon's resignation over the Watergate scandal. He retired from news in 1979 and made several film and TV appearances, sometimes playing himself, such as on TV's The Odd Couple, The Bionic Woman, and V. As mentioned earlier, the placement of V on early Friday night at 8-7 Central, opposite the Dukes of Hazzard, resulted in a dumbing down of themes and ideas presented. David Abramowitz, brought on by Garner Simmons and made executive story consultant, told Scott Thomas in 2011 how disappointed he was in the chosen time slot. As a child, I was into Norse myths and science fiction, and I always kept up with it so I welcomed the opportunity to write it. But I think NBC made a mistake placing it at 8 p.m. I would have placed the show at 9 o'clock and done some more adult themes. That is my only objection, because you couldn't really show the carnage of war, and things you did on the miniseries you couldn't do weekly because of the time slot. Actor Michael Ironside noted another issue the series faced early on was the breakneck speed of production for an action-adventure series featuring as many characters as it did. The episodes were shot over seven filming days, as he told James Van Heys in 1984. We started out shooting four days in studio and three days out, but things got kind of hairy. It's hard to have a semblance of a relationship among the characters and have action. It's like trying to have what Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere have, plus the action of the A-team. In seven days, that's very difficult. V is really an eight or nine day show, and we don't have a strong second unit to film empty cars going over cliffs and such. Our special effects are strongly tied to the main characters. Interestingly, a decade earlier, many adventure shows were cranked out in six shooting days, as was common on the Universal lot in the mid-70s. It was none other than V creator Kenneth Johnson that first introduced seven-day episode shoots on The Bionic Woman and eight-day shoots on The Incredible Hulk, both times to the initial consternation of Universal's Frank Price. When it came time for NBC to decide if the show would be given its back nine, typically where a network would order an additional nine episodes in addition to the front 13 for a complete season of 22 episodes. The network only chose to order a back six. But those six episodes would have to be produced under a reduced budget, with NBC cutting $250,000 from each episode, resulting in a budget $100,000 less than even the original agreement. The first and foremost casualty of the reduced budget was seen in the opening credits, as characters that had not been killed off were written out of the show, some of which who had been around since the first miniseries. Thus, we got Elias Taylor, killed by a visitor disintegrator beam. Nathan Bates, killed by Mr. Chang, who in turn was killed by Kyle robin maxwell unable to handle la anymore leaves for chicago accompanied by fan favorite ham tyler and the sometimes seen chris farber whose exits seemed tacked on at the last minute and not even accounted for in the narrative the cast shakeup also resulted in frank ashmore being invited to return to the cast to his initial surprise the budget cuts were also evident on screen in other ways Well before mid-season, location shooting had been greatly minimized, and we kept seeing the same couple of areas of the Warner backlot repeatedly. Having recently visited, I recognized Warner's Hennessy Street, which stood in for any downtown L.A. location, and Midwest Street, with its street-level storefronts and town square, used any time the characters needed to travel out of L.A. The budget cuts led to a great reduction in the use of lasers from handheld weapons. The sound effect was often heard without viewers seeing the laser blast. Or the laser blast was directed at the camera where a cheaper optical effect was used to create a large blue light to simulate the visitors shooting at the viewer. If a shot could be reused where unidentified shock troopers were firing lasers, it was. The series not only continued to recycle Skyfighter flying footage from the miniseries, but began cannibalizing its own episodes for any possible reusable clips, only a few of which I pointed out in the episode review. There were changes behind the camera as well, with Garner Simmons being let go, so Manimal co-creator Don Boyle could be brought on as supervising producer. Producers Skip Ward and David J. Latt stayed on to work under Boyle. And classic TV producer Ralph Riskin was brought on late in the series for two episodes. You'll recall I mentioned earlier Simmons snuck in some dialogue in episode 13 during the wedding of Charles and Diana as he elaborated to Dan Kopp. Since it was to be a visitor wedding, I felt it only proper that the vows be spoken in their native alien tongue. And since I got to invent the language, instead of I do, I had Diana say, Pogue, and Charles respond, Mahon. Now in Gaelic, Pogue Mahon means kiss my ass. As I recall, they reversed the order in the final cut, but I felt that I'd made my point. Are you ready? Mahon. Pogue. In the final cut, it actually sounded like only Mahone was left in the dialogue, as Jane Badler seemed to recite a completely different word. Whether Simmons' little joke was discovered and altered during actual filming remains unknown. It was at this point that the three science fiction consultants also began to be credited, starting with episode 13, Michael Chase Walker, Jeffrey B. Walker, and Thomas Scortia. Even though Garner Simmons was the writer and supervising producer of this episode, he maintains he never saw these consultants, as he told Dan Kopp. I never met nor had any dealings with any of these gentlemen. My guess is that some executive Warners and or NBC thought that they might impress some of the audience. Obviously, they were wrong. So, who were these gentlemen? Thomas N. Scortia was a chemist who worked for several aerospace companies in the 1950s and 60s. In his spare time, he wrote science fiction and had numerous published short stories and novels from the mid-1950s up to the mid-80s. His novel The Glass Inferno was in part the basis for Irwin Allen's 1974 film The Towering Inferno. About a year after V went off the air, scortia sadly died from leukemia just short of 60 years old michael chase walker's imdb is rather limited but a lot of his work isn't listed there the manhattan native grew up in the biz sometimes appearing with his unnamed model actress mother on television in a tv episode or commercial for vick's vaporub it's
2: the most comforting thing you can do for a cold huh johnny But pills are... Can't you almost see those vapors working down deep, helping Johnny breathe? Yes, but it's helping him rest easy all night, get the sleep he needs. Who says modern mothers are out of touch with their kids?
0: As an adult working as a freelance writer, he became interested in animation. And researching properties to adapt was given a copy of the book, The Last Unicorn. Forming a boutique animation and advertising studio in Peoria, his small company managed to secure funding to buy outright film rights to the book. For a few years, he attempted to team with a Hollywood studio to produce an animated feature film. Finally, through ABC's Martin Starger, he was put in touch with Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin and in 1979 moved to L.A. to work for Rankin-Bass Productions. In 1982, the end product was seen on screen.
1: She is a creature of legend. In an age of sorcery and savagery. Well, what have (laughs) we here? Demons. No! And dragons.
0: At Rankin Bass, Walker oversaw production of several animated features, such as The Return of the King and The Flight of Dragons. He later became staff writer and story developer on the syndicated animated series Voltron, Defender of the Universe, and The He Man and She Ra Hour. Then in 1985, CBS snatched him up to be the director of children's programs, where he supervised the development of their entire Saturday morning lineup, which included Hanna-Barbera's Wildfire, Pee-wee's Playhouse, Teen Wolf, and Galaxy High. During these years, he found time to team with his brother, Jeffrey Walker, to form Walker Brothers Productions. Jeff Walker as a boy loved comic books, Elvis, and anything that horror host Zachary Lee would play on New York's Channel 9. As an adult, he also tried his hand at acting, with bit parts and films, but found himself drawn to the music world. He started writing music reviews for magazines, which he was able to parlay into an editing job for Music World magazine, before moving on to Rolling Stone. Getting into the public relations side, he ran PR for Island Records in Jamaica, where he was reportedly responsible for creating the public persona and brand identity for singer Bob Marley. Together, the Walker brothers worked at TriStar Pictures, developing properties for film and TV. The brothers did get the 1986 movie, The Gladiator produced for ABC.
1: It destroyed the only thing he ever loved. He killed my little brother. That's why they call it vehicular homicide. Mindless terror from which no one is safe. It makes ten this month. What are we going to do about it tonight? And before the death toll rises, he'll be on the road. I'm over the line, Susan. I'm way over the line. There is no stopping. The Gladiator, tomorrow.
0: Among the various projects the Walker Brothers consulted on was indeed V, the series. Jeff Walker also made a major contribution to modern pop culture. In 1970, a modest comic book convention started being held yearly at college meeting rooms or hotel basements in San Diego. By 1973, 2,000 fans were attending, and the convention was upgraded to the Sheraton Inn Ballroom, And guest speakers such as Dorothy Fontana came to promote the new animated Star Trek, then airing on NBC. Also in attendance was Jeff Walker, promoting albums for United Artists Records. Through his marketing and PR work in 1976, Jeff met Charles Lippincott, a publicist working for Lucasfilm at the time and learned he was visiting the San Diego Convention that year to show slides promoting an upcoming sci-fi film called Star Wars, which Jeff took note of. In 1979, Jeff joined the Ladd Company and worked publicity for their films Outland and Blade Runner, bringing 16mm making-of featurettes to the San Diego Convention at a time when such material was rare to come by. For Amblin Entertainment, he promoted Gremlins and Back to the Future 2. He even started a side business called The Thinking Cap Company, which sold licensed products for popular science fiction films. In 1988, Jeff Walker, along with Batman creator Bob Kane, gave a presentation to promote Tim Burton's upcoming version of The Caped Crusader. Giving audiences a peek at pre-production designs, Walker was tasked with addressing the growing controversy over the casting of Michael Keaton and winning over an initially skeptical fan base. Walker's talking points about the tone and production design of the film were written up in newspaper articles and worked their way through the fan community. When film footage first became available, it too made its way to conventions everywhere as fans got the first jaw-dropping glimpses of the new Batmobile, the explosive stunts, and Keaton in full Batman regalia. Since that 1988 presentation, Jeff has brought hundreds of film and TV panels to once was that little basement convention in San Diego, and likely more than anyone else is responsible for turning the San Diego Comic-Con into what it is today, the main venue for introducing and marketing genre entertainment to the public.
1: Let's all be there this fall and meet Jason Bateman, the smooth talking teenager. Hormonal problems again? He's got style. Ha!
2: Please, sir. Papa Breastfeed.
1: And he's got flair. Gee, he's good. He thinks he's got it made. I was born for this kind of work. But what he doesn't know is that on the other side of this door, he's about to meet his match. It's your move Wednesday night, starting this fall on NBC. Monday, it's an all new Little House movie, a two hour Christmas special. Will the holidays bring tragedy when Laura's baby is kidnapped? Why did you leave her? Bless all the dear children Monday.
0: Resuming our look at the mid-season series retooling, the Howard K. Smith Freedom Network updates were done away with, and a new opening credit sequence was put together, with a more serious tone, recapping the original story, but that tonally contradicted the preposterous Death of Charles storyline that led off the final six episodes. As touched on earlier, it was as if the departing Garner Simmons had introduced the most ridiculous plotline possible for the next showrunner to wrap up. What resulted was the series evolving into what seemed like two completely different shows, with an A-Team-like story on Earth, while Lizard Dynasty went on up on the mothership. By the time this storyline wrapped up, and we had the promise of less mothership absurdity, with Philip revealing himself to be sympathetic to the resistance, the show was cancelled. However, according to the V. Writer's Guide, put together back in July of 1984, the setup for soap opera tropes were there from the very beginning. Writer's Guides, or Bibles as they're often called in the industry, are produced to help episode writers and directors not only keep track of characters, settings, and established rules of a show, but also to understand the tone and storytelling format that is to be used. They may also present basic suggested episode storylines. Now, I've described episodes as being tonally uneven, as if there were two different shows going on simultaneously. The source of this split personality disorder seems to be found right in the Writer's Guide. After reviewing the series' premise, which describes the story of an ongoing struggle, of conflict, combat, courage, and cowardice, of ordinary people in extraordinary situations, of human stories set against a science fiction background, and invoking classic war films from The Guns of Navarone to The Great Escape as a source of story ideas, the guide quickly makes a tonal shift and takes a preposterous turn. We here at V like to say that our show is 75% Star Wars and 25% Dallas, or alternately, that it's all my children on Mars. The joke is not far from true. For V has attracted a loyal adult audience unheard of for an imagination show since the glory days of Twilight Zone. We feel that one of the reasons, besides intelligent writing, is the intriguing personal stories of life, betrayal, and anguish we intertwine with our action. And since we have some gloriously manipulative vamps and villains, there's great fun to be had here. If we ever do a cliffhanger season ending, it might very well be who shot JR with a ray gun? Several network-approved storylines are covered, which include a Who episode where visitors team with resistance members to find out who is offing key visitors at the legation. A mission episode where a resistance seeks to destroy an alien RR retreat for visitor officials. We saw this one in episode 7, Visitor's Choice an episode where a resistance and visitors are forced to team up to fight an epidemic that threatens both species, and an episode revolving around a renegade visitor motorcycle gang, with Kyle Bates forming his own biker gang to go up against them. Evidently, this one had been given some thought, as an additional note reveals, This one can change as much as we need. All NBC really wants to see is kids on bikes and alien Harleys. While we didn't get this specific episode, Kyle was seen on a dirt bike often in early episodes, as were visitor troops. Perhaps this was NBC attempting to evoke feelings from their popular series, Chips, that had finished its run the prior year. The guide also dwells on the character of Elizabeth, Elizabeth is 18 months old and looks 18 years old and describes her attraction to Kyle. It also sets up another rivalry for Diana, a retread of what we had already seen in the final battle with Sarah Douglas's Pamela, a tug-of-war which Diana had ended with a laser blast. Evidently wanting to reinstate this dynamic, this rivalry was recreated in the form of Lydia, played by June Chadwick. This led to many episodes where entirely too much time was spent with Diana and Lydia exchanging snide remarks with hands on their hips. Given the continuing deterioration in quality, it's not surprising that some of the actors expressed a desire to leave before the season was over. Michael Wright, whose character of Elias was the first to depart, told Dan Kopp in 2016, My heart wasn't really in it. It was a great pleasure doing the first installment and the final battle, but the thing had taken a turn, not for the better. The show devolved into a running and gunning vehicle. It got too old for me, and I wanted to move on. Faye Grant had been less than enthused that V had been picked up for series to begin with, after the departure of creator Kenneth Johnson. While she was contractually obligated to remain she had to continually resist the campy story elements some of the writers kept trying to insert. At one point, putting her foot down when they wanted to have a dynasty-style mud fight between Julie and Diana. It got bad enough that she began suggesting ways to kill off the Julie character, as she told Vanity Fair earlier this year. In fact, since I wanted out of it so badly, they kept throwing more and more money at me. I mean, I had literally 50 ways to kill me off, and they weren't having it. Where would a season two have gone story-wise? While the never-filmed final episode would have set up the team of Donovan, Willie, Kyle, Elizabeth, and Ham traveling the southwestern U.S. in some sort of post-apocalyptic vehicle in search of the Anx, Dan Kopp's interview with Robert England revealed a surprise twist. The Star Child was going to go over to the dark side. Meanwhile, the Resistance was going to get Lydia. Diana and Lydia were going to have it out, and we would have turned Lydia to the good side. I never saw that in the script, but I heard that was part of the Bible. England also looked forward to developments with his character. There was also some thought that Willie would have been captured and then would have kicked ass. After all, Willie is an alien. It would have been really fun to see Willie captured, tortured, and finally, tears his chains off, kicks down the door, and kills a hundred lizard guys. It's all latent energy. Another rumored Season 2 plotline involved a splinter group of visitors that had converted to Christianity. But the writers were never given the opportunity to develop a second season, or even conclude the first and we're left with the memory of V's decline into sci-fi camp that belied the seriousness of the story we were supposed to believe. A sentiment shared by those attached to the production. Faye Grant I failed to understand and resisted the introduction of a more campy style to the writing of the show. I just didn't see where Julie fit in. There were just too many cooks in the kitchen. When a TV show is written to cater to demographics... It suffers. Jane Badler. It just wasn't very good. It was funny at times, and it was kitsch and a bit farcical. It was fun, but it was very, very cartoon like. I just wish there was a higher quality to the writing. It always comes down to the writing, doesn't it? And don't even ask former NBC exec Jeff Sagansky about the series. Ugh, the worst whatever issues the series had could certainly not be laid at the feet of the talented Dennis McCarthy, who returned to compose the music for the series' opening theme, as well as provide scoring for at least 10 episodes. Especially early in the series, his score stages key moments, such as Martin's death, Elizabeth's rebirth, and the loss of Robert Maxwell during the defense against the Triax superweapon. Elizabeth is given her own theme, which is adapted into a romantic melody for her relationship with Kyle. A tonally different theme was worked up for the intro for the final six episodes, but there was no more new episode scoring by McCarthy. Like the final battle, no official soundtrack for V the series was ever released, but McCarthy himself put out a promotional CD, which can sometimes be picked up on eBay. McCarthy went on to have quite a career in TV and film scoring, working on various Star Trek series for some 18 years. He scored 88 episodes of The Next Generation, which include standout episodes such as Yesterday's Enterprise, Unification 1 and 2, Hollow Pursuits, and The Inner Light. 77 episodes of Deep Space Nine, 65 episodes of Voyager, and 30 episodes of Enterprise. He also composed the series theme for Deep Space Nine, for which he won an Emmy. When The Next Generation went to the big screen, McCarthy followed, composing for 1994's Star Trek Generations. And we can't leave out the Star Trek Experience attraction that opened in Las Vegas in 1998. While he has certainly done other work No person has provided more music for Star Trek than Dennis McCarthy. Today, the composer is 78 and works on what he wants to, be it Star Trek fan films, artistic short subjects, or the retrospective on Deep Space Nine, What We Left Behind. Outside the short-lived weekly series, V had taken the pop culture consciousness by storm. There were V conventions being held during the original TV series run. One in Houston, Texas, advertised their con on KPRC Channel 2 during the episode War of Illusions. V fan Tammy Quist recalls seeing actor Jeff Yeager at the convention who revealed the series would be ending on an unresolved storyline. As mentioned in the last podcast, the first two miniseries were compiled into a novelization, which presented its own challenges, as related by writer Ann Crispin in Starlog magazine. In doing novelizations, the most significant problem is often the impossible time frame, imposed by having to produce a manuscript very quickly so it can appear on the bookshelves at the same moment as the TV show or movie sees release. I wrote the 132,000 words of V in four months, mid-September 1983 to mid-January 1984. At one point during the writing, I produced 190 pages in 14 days. Midway through V, its creator, Kenneth Johnson, left the project. Warner subsequently notified me that the entire six hours of V the Conclusion were being rewritten. Different events occurred, new characters appeared, old characters were deleted, people died who hadn't died before, or lived who hadn't survived in Johnson's version. With the deadline of December 31, 1983, I received the third script, covering the miniseries' final two hours on December 18th. As I discovered, it took approximately 200 book pages to novelize those two hours. Now you know why novelizations often differ significantly from what is actually shown on the screen. During her life, Crispin published 23 novels and was known for her tie-ins with popular science fiction properties, including Star Trek, Star Wars, and Pirates of the Caribbean in addition to her original Starbridge series. Crispin passed away in 2013 at age 63 after a prolonged battle with cancer. Following the A.C. Crispin novelization combining the two miniseries, there were 15 additional novels published up through 1988 that focused on events not depicted in the weekly series, two of which were also written by Crispin. Books covered events happening in other U.S. cities or are set in the time period of the unrecorded year between the end of V. The Final Battle and Liberation Day. Plot developments also don't always align with and in some cases contradict what viewers saw on TV, since many of the novels were evidently written prior to there being a writer's guide for the TV series. In February 1985, DC Comics began publishing V as a monthly title. Cover price was 75 cents, and 18 issues were printed, with the title ceasing publication in July 1986. Most issues were written by DC regular Carrie Bates, with art provided by Carmine Infantino and Tony DeZuniga having just started my first job at the time I had my own money and collected several of these issues however for as big a pop culture phenomena that V briefly was there was an underwhelming amount of licensed merchandise for the property still 1984 did see a few items released recall that the concept of a visitor toy line was even satirized in the original miniseries see dad check it out he got a squad vehicle. Yeah. And the action figures, the Supreme Commander and Diana. Oh. Huh.
2: I wonder if they get a royalty.
0: He's got a mothership at home. Yeah, I got
2: them all.
0: Yeah. However, the toys shown were only props. One of the actual shooting models of a shuttle was used, and the figures were custom mods of existing toys, possibly that of G.I. Joe, Grunt, and Scarlet figures from Hasbro. There was a single 12-inch action figure from LJN called Enemy Visitor, released prior to the weekly TV series, and LJN had a line of toys to tie in to the V-series in the works. The planned toy line included four 4.5-inch action figures, two human, Mike Donovan and Kyle Bates, and two visitors, Diana and a Shock Trooper and three vehicles, a Firebird Transam for the Resistance, a Visitor Skyfighter, and Visitor Military Jeep with mounted laser cannon, all scaled to fit the figures. Interestingly, the character of Kyle was chosen and not the more popular Ham Tyler, played by Michael Ironside, revealing the possibility that L J N had advanced knowledge he would be leaving the series. While prototypes of the toy line were shown by LJN alongside their proposed Street Hawk line at the International Toy Fair in early February 1985, by late March both toy lines were nixed following the corresponding cancellation of each series. Additional licensed products included a set of 66 trading cards and 22 stickers by FLIR, a walkie-talkie set by Powertronic, Jigsaw puzzles from Maruka Industries, metal lunchbox in matching thermos by Aladdin, and an LJN 42-inch bop bag. Toy brand Arco released three guns, the Resistance 45 er sound pistol and holster, the Resistance Defender Rifle Target game set with rapid-fire machine gun sound, and the Visitor Laser Pistol that got very limited distribution and was later reworked into a Laser Blaster Target game set under both Robotech and generic branding. There were also a few rack toys released, which are those low-quality toys sold on a cardboard backer card in grocery and convenience stores, which usually consist of the branding being slapped on a completely unrelated toy. Due to the overwhelming popularity of V in international TV markets, there was quite a bit of unofficial, unlicensed merchandise. There was a line of very cheaply made rack toys released by an unknown toy company in Argentina. The toys appear to be non posable PVC figures clearly intended to represent Diana, Julie, Donovan, and a visitor with no human mask but had no licensing, copyright, or company information printed on the cards. Other toys, such as vehicles and spaceships, were also put out in this line. Uruguay had a set of 12-inch posable figures for V. There was no attempt made at matching likenesses of actors, as these were basically knockoffs of knockoffs. A 6-inch bendable visitor holding a laser pistol and wearing only gold briefs was released in Italy. A V computer game was released in 1986 by Ocean Software in the UK for the Commodore 64, ZX Spectrum, and Amstrad CPC platforms. In this side-scrolling game you play as Mike Donovan, entering the visitor's huge mothership in order to blow up its reactor by setting explosives at key points, avoiding visitor robots. The game player searches to put together the formula for red dust from eight different mothership labs, adding a puzzle element to the gameplay. Home Video and Reruns NBC reran V until July 5th, when it was replaced with Friday Night Movies and the summer variety series, Motown Review. The show began to be run overseas. In February, it began running in Australia, And in June, it began running on the UK's iTV. It also ran in Estonia, France, Germany, Japan, Spain, Mexico, and Uruguay, among possibly other countries. In the days when a television series release on home video was still something of a rarity, V the Series joined V and V the Final Battle, on VHS as a set of nine videotapes containing all 19 episodes released by Warner Home Video. The series also enjoyed reruns on the Sci-Fi Channel in the 1990s. In 2005, the series was released in a three-disc, double-sided DVD box set. Attempts to Resurrect V Multiple accounts report sets, props, and costumes were kept in storage, while first, Blatzinger Productions, and later presumably Warner Brothers attempted to sell NBC on a final miniseries, or TV movie, to wrap up the story. But no project ever materialized. One proposed storyline would have had Philip, Willie, and the Resistance on the visitor homeworld, battling Diana and her attempts to overthrow the leader. Another idea was to depict Earth following the leader's peace treaty, with the mothership fleet withdrawn and some peaceful visitors choosing to remain behind and live on Earth. However, in the wake of the invasion, a fascistic U.S. government rose to impose an alien apartheid, calling for a continued need for the resistance. Finally, in 1989, while working as story editor on the Twilight Zone reboot for CBS, writer J. Michael Straczynski found time to begin writing a script for a proposed miniseries revival of V for first-run syndication under the umbrella title, V, The Next Chapter. His two-part, four-hour teleplay, titled The Rebirth, would pick up the saga five years following the events of Episode 19, but would eschew the campy elements of the series and even present a grittier version of the visitors than originally seen. In the wake of the truce called by the leader, the visitors launch an unprecedented all-out surprise attack on Earth, completely leveling cities such as Detroit, Minsk, and San Diego. Countries all over the world unconditionally surrender. Willie is executed for treason, while Donovan is wounded and taken to the visitor homeworld as a prisoner of war. Julie goes into hiding in Australia, and Lydia is killed in a shuttle explosion, for real this time. Diana is demoted and reassigned, while the leader takes her place as a central figure in the story. Elizabeth's fate is the worst of all, as she is dissected on the homeworld without anesthesia, but her body detonates, releasing her stored energy. The explosion wipes out much of the visitor medical college and ruling council in a two-mile-wide crater. Five years later, with Earth an occupied planet, a resistance group slowly begins to form in Chicago, under leadership of ex-Army Major Damon Mallory and Ham Tyler. The enemies of the visitors who were radioed by Julie years ago have finally responded. Called the outsiders, they appear humanoid, but are revealed to be of the same alien species as the visitors under human masks. Exiled from the visitor homeworld a millennium ago, The outsiders are pacifists and now technologically advanced. Arriving in two ships, one is captured by the visitors while the other meets up with the new resistance. The existence of an outsider weapon of immense power called the Tachyon Globe is revealed, which is captured and transported to an orbiting mothership by a visitor shuttle. However, Ham Tyler sneaks on board the shuttle and self-destructs the tachyon globe, destroying the mothership in the process and ending the story on a note of hope for humanity. After six drafts, the 200-page script, although receiving positive notes from Warner Brothers, was ultimately rejected in 1991 by the studio as simply too costly to produce. However, Warner went into business with Straczynski on another project.
1: It was the dawn of the Third Age of mankind, 10 years after the Earth-Minbari War. The Babylon Project was a dream given form. Its goal, to prevent another war by creating a place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for diplomats, hustlers, entrepreneurs, and wanderers. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It can be a dangerous place, but it's our last best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2258. The name of the place is Babylon 5.
0: Straczynski's epic sci-fi series, Babylon 5, was a cornerstone of Warner's fledgling primetime entertainment network for four seasons, from 1993 to 1997, with a fifth season airing on cable channel TNT. The first three acts of his V script surfaced on Usenet in 1994, and has been floating around the internet since. Strazenski has indicated over the years his intention of publishing the script as a novel, but this has yet to happen. After Kenneth Johnson revisited his original miniseries for the 2001 DVD release commentary, he was amazed at the public response to his creation nearly 20 years later. Not only in terms of the sales figures approaching 3 million copies, but also the tens of thousands of direct public responses to his open invitation to email him, included in the audio commentary. As he told Lee Margulies of the L.A. Times, Audiences clearly wanted more, and the idea of exploring what the world looked like 20 years later was intriguing to me. Johnson thus approached NBC with the concept of bringing V back as a four-hour miniseries set 20 years later. The new installment would have brought back many of the original cast, presented alongside their younger descendants, fighting a new visitor invasion. I sold the idea of a new miniseries, V, the second generation, to NBC in 2002. Alas, it was not like working with Brandon Tartikoff. Years passed. They even had me write a second miniseries screenplay to remake my original miniseries, which was to air first. But while NBC dawdled, long-form TV waned. My miniseries remained unproduced because virtually all the outlets for miniseries dried up. The project was pitched to NBC's corporate cousin, the Sci-Fi Channel, who also ultimately passed. After not being able to relaunch V, Johnson turned his script into a novel, which was released in February 2008. Ignoring the events of V the Final Battle and V the Series, the story picks up 20 years after the original arrival of The Visitors. Over the years, the visitors have continued to dupe the majority of humans into thinking they're here for our benefit by introducing technological and social advancements. They have continued to steal Earth's water under the guise of cleansing it from pollution. The visitor youth corps has morphed into the teammates, which are nothing more than a human militia tasked with hunting the resistance. The resistance continues to fight a losing battle to convince the masses that the visitors are concealing their true nature and intent for humanity. But the message Julie Parrish broadcast into space two decades ago is finally answered. The enemies of the visitors, known as the ZT, join sides with the resistance, turning things to humanity's favor. But do the ZT also have their own hidden agenda? The book is out of print and now can command a pretty penny online. However, during the 2000s, Hollywood studios started to get remake fever. New Line Television and UPN brought back The Twilight Zone for a third go-round in 2002. Universal Television and the Sci-Fi Channel launched a reimagining of Battlestar Galactica, helmed by Ronald D. Moore in 2004. And Universal and NBC even brought back The Bionic Woman in 2007, with neither creator Kenneth Johnson or series star Lindsay Wagner involved in this underwhelming version that only lasted eight episodes. And unknown to Johnson, while he was prepping his novel for release in the fall of 2007, video game creator Jace Hall, was pitching Warner Television on a completely new interpretation of the V franchise for post-9-11 audiences. Warner had purchased Hall's Monolith Productions in 2004 and promoted him to head their new Games Division, directing the adaptation of studio properties such as Scooby-Doo, Harry Potter, The Matrix, and DC superheroes into video game titles. During the course of his job, he discovered Warner owned the TV rights to V through colleague Jamie Bryan O'Moore. As he told VentureBeat in 2009, Jamie and I actually sat down and thought, how could we reimagine what V was to make it into something that made sense for the audience that we know today? I believe that the audience that I'm used to serving through video games is fairly intelligent and also likes to have a certain amount of depth associated with the content that they're viewing most of the time. Plausibility is a huge factor when it comes to science fiction for it to really stick. With V, everything needed to make sense. There needed to be rhyme and reason for everything. So we spent months creating a Bible for this universe. Warner initially had no takers for a new V television series, until ABC took the bait. Six months after publishing V, the second generation, Warner Television informed Kenneth Johnson that they were going out with a new take on V as a one-hour series, and my services would not be required. The 4400's Scott Peters and Kathy Gilroy from Millennium and the Lone Gunman were brought on to the producing team alongside Jace Hall. And on November 3rd, 2009, the visitors arrived.
2: Since their arrival, there's been no contact with any of the 29 ships now hovering over the major cities of the world. Don't be frightened. We mean no harm. Calling themselves the visitors. Dude, that is so cool.
1: The world's in bad shape, Father. Who wouldn't welcome a savior right now? They heal me, and I got no pain. It's amazing.
2: It's been three weeks since the visitors' arrival, yet thousands are still flocking to see the motherships in person. Welcome to the New York Mothership. My name is Lisa.
1: We're all so quick to jump on the bandwagon. But before we get on, let us at least examine it. I want him. Anna would like you to do the interview.
2: But that's the danger.
1: Gratitude
0: can morph into worship.
1: They say that you two are obsessed with the Vs. You know what the Vs? They call it spreading hope. Do you have any questions before we go to Aaron?
2: Just be sure not to ask anything that would paint us in a negative light.
1: Excuse me? I know the real reason you're here, Father, and I am not the only one.
2: We're honored and privileged to be able to assist mankind with our knowledge and technology.
1: They've been implementing a plan that will result in the extermination of every man, woman, and child.
2: If you could speak to the protesters, what would you say? That embracing change is never easy, but the reward for doing so can be far greater than anything you can imagine. They gain trust
1: with the promise of friendship. And of course, all they're really doing is positioning themselves as the saviors of mankind.
2: They're arming themselves with the most powerful weapon out there. What's that? Devotion. What do we do now?
0: We'll fight. The new series featured quality talent, such as Elizabeth Mitchell, Marina Baccarin, Morris Chestnut, Joel Gretsch, and Scott Wolfe. However, I and many viewers were less than fully enthused about this new version. That's not to say the show was bad, just different. Yes, you still had the rat-eating visitors and their secret menacing but vague plans for Earth. The motherships, the resistance, an alien-human hybrid, but this time around, the visitors or Vs, as they were called, came across more as cult members than fascists, which made High Commander Anna the cult leader. The most interesting aspect of this new series was the depiction of the fact that Anna and the visitors soon became objects of religious devotion after they presented humanity with medical and planetary cures that were miraculous when compared with human technology an aspect the original incarnation of V didn't really deal with. There was also no memorable, distinct music for the show. As is the case with a lot of modern TV, outside the title card music sting, there was no opening theme, and the generic, dramatic music that was used felt like it was pulled from a royalty-free music library. More than one reviewer also interpreted the new series as an allegory of President Obama and his plans for universal health care, noting the series debuted on the one-year anniversary of his election, and the phrase was used verbatim on the show. Such an interpretation is not altogether unreasonable, seeing that the original V certainly contained political allegory. The producers, however, claimed any such comparisons to be a complete coincidence. The plot point of the V's sneaking something sinister into our supply of flu vaccines, as well as the comments of main character Erica Evans about pandemics and the media, is also likely to raise the eyebrow of anyone watching the show today. Although the series carried Kenneth Johnson's name in a created-by-credit this almost wasn't the case. Reportedly, Warner Television's initial position on crediting Johnson was that the new show was different enough from the original that Johnson did not need to be credited. Johnson filed a dispute with this with the Writers Guild, which went to arbitration, temporarily shutting down show production in the process. The arbiters ruled the new show was indeed a remake of Johnson's original, and his name was included in the credits. On the bubble, the show was renewed for a second season, and familiar faces such as Jane Battler and Mark Singer were even added to the cast. However, declining ratings resulted in an original 13-episode order being reduced to 10. After the conclusion of the second season, ABC revealed the show would not be renewed for a third, leaving the storyline unresolved just like 26 years earlier. In general, I agree with YouTuber Stan Fine's assessment of the series, who commented, It's slick and there's a decent effects budget, but with the liberal use of virtual sets, it can come across as clinical and soulless, like someone trying to sell you cryptocurrency before, during, and after an exorcism. If you want to check out the 2009 V, you can watch it free on Tubi. But right after Warner informed Kenneth Johnson they would be producing a new take on V for television, as they owned the TV rights to the property, Johnson made an interesting realization. The day after WBTV told me their plans, my producer friends, David Foster and Ryan Heppe, uncovered the fact that I owned and controlled the motion picture rights to V. I suddenly had a lot of new best friends. All the major studios, Fox, Paramount, MGM, Warners, wanted to buy the rights with a whole lot of money. They see it as a $200 million tentpole picture and want to bring someone else to direct. I took a deep breath and said, no. I got into the business to direct and do what I do. So what we've been endeavoring to do is to set up an independent production and produce this movie for $50 million. So I can hang on to the director, reins and make sure it gets done. However, Johnson's theatrical V project fell into a development limbo for several years. In February 2018, a then-recently formed Desilu Studios announced a V revival as a feature film, with none other than creator Kenneth Johnson returning, as he told Deadline. We are delighted to team up with Desilu to bring the timeless and timely story of resistance against tyranny into the 21st century. V will be the first of a cinematic trilogy, which will tell the full epic tale in the manner I always envisioned. A sizable down payment was given to Johnson and his producing partners to fund the planned new trilogy of films. Six months later, it was revealed that this incarnation of Desilu Studios was in Johnson's words, a sham operation. Charles Hensley had begun using the Desilu name in 2016. Representing to investors, he was making new content for said studio and reportedly attempted to even enlist the support of Lucy Arnaz to lend legitimacy to the effort, which she declined. Hinsley of Redondo Beach, California, was not a film or TV producer, but has an interesting history. In the late 1990s, he and a business partner developed and brought to market the homeopathic product Zycam. Zycam-branded products have been the focus of FDA investigations, public warnings, and hundreds of lawsuits over alleged injuries resulting from their use. In 2013, he was criminally charged and found guilty of illegally marketing an unapproved drug claimed to treat bird flu and the original SARS coronavirus. For the Desilu scheme, he was not only sued by CBS Studios, but was criminally charged. As the Justice Department alleges, he defrauded investors by selling stock in a worthless company, committed identity theft to list another party as CEO in his offering materials, and that he misappropriated investor funds for his personal use. Among the alleged victims were a Los Angeles animation studio and post-production company, an Internet service provider based in Israel, and an unnamed development firm, along with 21 individuals that were defrauded of some $600,000, and in some cases, entire companies that were signed over to Hensley in stock swap agreements. In December 2022, Hensley pled not guilty to 11 counts of wire fraud and one count of aggravated identity theft. The latest information provided by the U.S. Attorney's Office to Forgotten TV was that a mental health evaluation had been ordered for Hensley. If found competent to stand trial, his trial is set to begin September 12th 2023. If found guilty, he could face up to 20 years for each count of wire fraud. Kenneth Johnson still hopes to bring V to the big screen. He, of course, has enjoyed other successes. In 1988, he directed Johnny Five's return to the big screen in Short Circuit 2. The following year, he adapted 1988's Alien Nation for the small screen writing and directing the TV series pilot movie for Fox Television.
1: That was the scene in California's Mojave Desert five years ago. Our historic first view of the newcomer's ship. Theirs was a slave ship carrying a quarter million beings bred to adapt and labor in any environment but they've washed ashore on Earth with no way to get back to where they came from. And in the last five years, the newcomers have become the latest addition to the population of Los Angeles.
0: Johnson considered the show to be something of a sci-fi adaptation of In the Heat of the Night, with themes dealing with racism, prejudice, and cultural and religious differences between human and newcomer, as they fully integrated into our society. Although the series was one of the few rating successes the new Fox network had, budgetary considerations combined with the advertising revenues being collected by the fledgling network caused Fox to cancel the series after one season. However, the show was brought back as a series of five made-for-TV movies directed by Johnson, airing from 1994 to 1997. In 1997, Johnson adapted a DC Comics character for the big screen, writing and directing Steel with Shaquille O'Neal. Steel was a character introduced in 1993 in the wake of the infamous Death of Superman storyline. Steel turned out to be a box office bomb and one of Johnson's productions that was less than well received by the public. After directing a pair of TV movies for the Disney Channel, Xenon, Girl of the 21st Century, and Don't Look Under the Bed, Johnson had a stint directing 10 episodes of the UPN sci-fi series Seven Days. Following that, he went on to work on the military courtroom drama Jag, directing 11 episodes. And although he's not been directly involved with any new TV or film since 2009, he has kept busy writing In 2017, he published his novel, The Man of Legends. Set in New York City in 2001, the book follows a troubled young female tabloid reporter who discovers the impossibility of a cursed man who apparently cannot die and who has profoundly affected the course of human history for 2,000 years. The book became an Amazon bestseller. His 2018 novel, The Darwin Variant, explores what happens when the icy shards of a rogue comet on its way to Earth bring an unknown virus that accelerates evolution to the extreme, making infected plants grow dominant, animals turn aggressive and deadly, and even humans begin exhibiting signs of brutal domination. When a lone CDC epidemiologist discovers the truth, she finds the virus will alter the very nature of what it means to be human. His latest book, Holmes' Coming, has classic detective Sherlock Holmes awaken from a steampunk sarcophagus into a modern-day San Francisco, where he finds he must pursue a descendant of Professor Moriarty. Holmes' Coming releases on paperback August 22, 2023. Johnson has continued to revisit his past work in the form of DVD and Blu-ray commentaries and at public appearances such as the San Diego Comic-Con. What about the creatives behind V, the series? Supervising producer number one Steven D'Souza is undoubtedly the most well-known name from the credits of the series, being the writer of several hit action films, 48 Hours, Commando, The Running Man, Die Hard, Hudson Hawk, Beverly Hills Cop 3, as well as writing and directing 1994's Street Fighter. His films have earned over $2 billion at the box office. Supervising producer number two, Garner Simmons, after V, wrote for Time Tracks and Silk Stalkings, was supervising producer on the CBS series, Wolf, and wrote for and produced three seasons of Poltergeist the legacy supervising producer number three Don Boyle went on to write for Baywatch and Baywatch nights as well as create the ABC series Gabriel's fire in 1990 writer and story editor David Braff next wrote for a dozen shows including Freddy's nightmares and the outer limits and he produced eight seasons of Baywatch Writer-story consultant Paul F. Edwards wrote about 20 hours of TV after V, including episodes of Heart of the City and O'Hara, as well as the 1990 feature film Firebirds. He used his Kali Sibber pseudonym once more for the 1996 TV movie The Cold Heart of a Killer. Writer-story editor David Abramowitz continued to write for television and produce Jake and the Fat Man, Highlander, and Queen of Swords. Writer-creative consultant Paul Monash, nearly 70 when V wrapped up, then wrote half a dozen TV movies and produced a sequel and remake to his original film, Carrie. In 2000, the Writers Guild of America gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. Accepting the award, he said, I have not written the great American novel. It is in its first draft. Of all the creatives behind the V-series, he is the only one no longer with us, having passed away in 2003 at age 85. V, however, lives on. Whether it's the giant hovering motherships, aliens disguised in human form, or the reptilian alien conspiracies that just won't die, V is firmly implanted in our collective consciousness. But V was more than just sci-fi tropes. The threat presented in that original Sinclair Lewis novel that inspired Kenneth Johnson to create V is incredibly still very relevant some 88 years later. So perhaps we should not only keep watching the skies for those alien ships that likely will never come, but also be ever vigilant regarding the much more insidious and real threat posed by anyone who opposes the values of tolerance, equality, and human rights for all. Let us never tell ourselves it can't happen here. Next time on Forgotten TV.
2: Hey, all right. This is the Fonz. Listen up. There is some unbelievable action coming your way today on Fonz and the Happy
1: Days Gang. Don't you miss it? Whoa. Oh. Do, 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 do. oh, now and they're, like, traveling to time. Oh, my, my. Laverne, so let's join the Army. You watch Where do I sign up? I'm with you. Just a couple of hard-driving roughnecks down Hazard County Way they don't want no trouble they just want to play just give them a the race to run Gently and son of a gun ooh, ooh, ooh. we're gonna have some fun
2: what mysteries now haunt us it is strange enchanting place
1: our adventures
0: are the best by far
2: here on gilligan's star
0: planet. oh yeah oh
2: Gordon, boom, Gordon, boom, Gordon, boom, Gordon, boom. Gordon, send us into outer space, cause there ain't nobody like you in the Malmation race.
0: From Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, to Punky Brewster and Alf, and stuff even more obscure, we revisit the topic of animated TV spinoffs, 80s style. It's an hour of Saturday morning fun, coming in September, then...
1: There must be something on. Oh, wow! Candy Critters! Oh! Oh, great! It's Monsters, our favorite show. Shh, it's
0: starting. It's Monsters, your favorite show. Learn how the syndicated Monster of the Week show came to television, created by Richard P. Rubenstein and Mitchell Galen, along with consultant Tom Allen, who tragically died before seeing the show air. Monsters, coming in October to Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. Forgotten TV is executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, Joshua Driscoll, Ron, and new executive producer, Kenny Siegel. With producers Julio Kappa, K.L. Young, Trevor Pearson, Mark Hadley, and new producer Tony Cook. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by NBC, Warner Brothers Television, Kenneth Johnson Productions, Blatt Singer Productions, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. V is the copyright and property of Warner Brothers Television, Kenneth Johnson Productions, Blatt Singer Productions, and possibly additional rights holders. Other series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips included are for the purposes of historical context, review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. Additional audio used under license by Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, check out Epidemic Sound, link in the show notes. This podcast is copyright 2023 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and selected websites. While reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of those audio clips possible. Ready? Dennis McCarthy, Topic. That SFX Guy, Rotten Tomatoes Classic Trailers, Humphrey Chen, Grand Distraction, The DJ Q Master, Robert Sinhauser, Vaters, Steven Brandt, Benzo, AZ Vids, Amuggle 15, Steven Brandt, The Elm Street Slasher, Spuzz Lightyear 2, Marco Cana, Analog Memories, The Retro Depot, Deputy High Lord Baron, The Visitors Vids, Webbox 100, Willard Palmer, 6201 Films, Classic TV Zone. Endless Void by Dream State Logic is used under an attribution non commercial share alike 3.0 unported Creative Commons license. This podcast would not be possible without the research of James Van Heiss. Dan Kopp, Mark Phillips, Frank Garcia, Clayton Barr, Slow Robot and the Starlogged Blog, and Vicky and the contributors to the V the Series interactive website. With special thanks to David Braff. Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following sources. The books... Science fiction television series 1959-1989 to by Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia. Fascist Lizards from Outer Space by Dan Kopp. Articles from the following periodicals. Starlog, numbers 82, 83, 88, 89, and 91. The V-Files, Book 1, Parts 1 and 2. And numerous newspaper articles clipped from newspapers.com content from the following online sources the RFP costume and prop maker community Ilana's V celebrity site the TV ratings guide the television Academy interviews CNN the inglorious Trexpert's podcast the LA Times Vanity Fair Secret Galaxy YouTube channel Stan Fine Plaid Stallions Venture Beat Airlock Alpha Variety, Deadline, CBS News, and Quack Watch. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV.
1: never know who they are good very good